we can actually be a beneficial organism on this planet and that we can actually restore and heal the damage that we've done thus far and that the purpose of life moving forward can actually be participating in that healing and that regeneration. I'm Luke Story. For the past 22 years, I've been relentlessly committed to my deepest passion, designing the ultimate lifestyle based on the most powerful principles of spirituality, health, psychology, and personal development. The Lifestylist Podcast is a show dedicated to sharing my discoveries and the experts behind them with you. As much as I try to maintain a healthy diet, there's two things that can take me out on a semi-regular basis in terms of taking me off of my food plan. One is ice cream, for which I've not really found a healthy alternative. The other one is cookies. And if I slip and eat cookies full of refined sugar, uh, gluten, which means they probably have glyphosate if they're made with flour, uh, it's it's bad news. I It does not serve me. But sometimes I do slip because I just get the munchies. You know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm human, you guys. Which is why I was super stoked that my sponsor, superfat.com, launched these keto cookie bites and send me a few bags of them. By the way, you, you folks at Superfat, uh, I'm out of those. I eat those within like five minutes of opening the package. No joke. So if you guys ever hear this plug, uh, you know my address. You know what I'm saying? But uh, they sent me these cookies, man. They got chocolate chips, snickerdoodle, peanut butter chocolate chip. They are freaking delicious and they are no guilt. They've got no grains, no gluten. They're keto certified. They're freaking delicious. Just like their nut butters, super fat kept their cookies free of any fillers or junk or swag. They've only got three grams of carbs, four grams of protein. Uh, they've only got 150 calories per serving and 290 calories per container. You know, personally, I just eat the container. Uh, best of all, though, they've got a lot of healthy fats. They're made with almond and coconut flour, grass-fed butter, and grass-fed collagen. I mean, how could you do it any better? The only thing that I can imagine being any better is if the bags were just bigger so I could pound a pound of them at once, actually. They're really good. So check them out. Uh, superfat.com is the website. That's superfat.com. Of course, I've got a discount for you of 15% by using the code Luke. So use the code Luke at superfat.com and get yourself some keto cookie bites. One of the coolest things about my job as the host of the Lifestylist podcast is always being on the cutting edge and not only finding out the best products when it comes to health, but the best companies that are making those products. Now, I'm someone that's been into bee products for a really long time. And if you heard episode 175 with Carly Stein, you got to hear me totally geek out on my obsession with bees and bee products. If you haven't heard that one, by the way, go back and check it out. That's 175. But what I didn't know about bee products is A, how many different products bees actually make in a hive, what their different uses are in terms of health support, and also that there are just a lot of companies that are making products that are very inferior. Either they're weak or they're not tested for pesticides and things like that. So the whole like bee product game 
I thought I was pretty on top of and I got schooled in that episode and now I'm going back and kind of re-educating myself and I'm using all of the products from Beekeepers Naturals. So they've got a few that I'm really into. There's the propolis, which is kind of like the medicine of the hive. Then you've got, of course, the bee pollen, which is the food. That's the protein. It's actually the highest protein food on the planet. And it's also got free-forming amino acids. So it's great for pre-workout, for muscle recovery. And then, of course, the raw honey, which is amazing. And I thought I knew something about honey. It's got live enzymes. You know, if you take a little bit before you go to bed, it helps you sleep. There's some things like that. But it turns out honey is a legit superfood if you get it from the right company. It's full of antioxidants and it's just insanely powerful. Then you've got royal jelly. Now, royal jelly is the chronic stuff. That's the food that's exclusively made for the queen bee. So the queen bee lives about 40 times longer than the average worker bee. So put the math together there and you'll know that royal jelly is some badass stuff. And if you want to try all of these products that the bees make in one, I'm going to recommend Bee Powered by Beekeepers Naturals. That's one of my favorites. Now, honestly, I go through it a little too fast. It comes in a jar and I just like pound that stuff. I probably weigh OD on it. You don't need to do it like I do it. You can savor it and make it last. It's an amazing product and a really great way for you to get an introduction into all of the bee products in one jar. So go to beekeepersnaturals.com, use the code lifestylist and save 15%. That's beekeepersnaturals.com and the code is lifestylist. You know where you are? You're in the jungle, baby. Well, at least down on the farm. This is episode 277, Down to Earth, Regenerative Farming, the Soul of Soil and Conscious Commerce with my friend Ryland Inglehart. Now, before I jump into this episode, I want to beg and plead for you to leave a rating and review for this podcast. Now, I don't ask for this favor often, quite frankly, because I get sick of podcasters requesting it every single episode as a listener. The fact remains, however, that ratings and reviews are incredibly helpful to podcasters like me and have a lot to do with the visibility of a show like this in iTunes. Now, I recently checked my status on iTunes, as I try to avoid, because it can be very disappointing if you don't find yourself in the top podcast, but I was pleasantly surprised to find myself sitting at number 17 of all alternative health podcasts in the world for which, of course, I was extremely grateful. And I owe that all to you, the listeners. And what makes those ratings get higher and higher and increase the exposure is you're leaving a rating and review. Now, this used to be very difficult to do, which is one of the reasons I stopped asking for it, because you had to log into iTunes on your computer. It was this whole runaround that was quite a pain in the ass, to be honest. Now it's super easy, though, especially if you have the Apple Podcast app on your phone. Just scroll down to the bottom of the feed of this podcast. Click where it says leave a rating and uh, you'll see a spot to leave a review. Hopefully it's five stars and you have something positive to say. And even if it's not so positive, just say it. I love ratings and reviews. It's a great way for me to understand what you want and what you don't want. So uh, with that, I would be very appreciative if you would take just a moment to do that as a regular listener to the show. And even if you're new, if you listen to this episode and you thought, wow, that was awesome, uh, just take a moment to um, give some support in that way. Thank you in advance. Now, this episode was recorded in Atlanta, Georgia at the Attune Festival, where I was a speaker along with our guest, Ryland. I recorded a number of shows there, Joe Dispenza, Sahara Rose, a few others, had a really great time and uh, it was just a wonderful opportunity to sit down and get to know Ryland. I've seen him around town for years. We've met on a, numerous occasions at 
the various Cafe Gratitude locations, et cetera. But this was a really uh, heartfelt, fun conversation. I think you're going to enjoy. Ryland, along with his family, opened the original Cafe Gratitude in San Francisco, California in 2004, which was a manifestation of a visionary concept that food, gratitude, and love are the recipes for cultivating community and a reverence for the living world. Now, today, Ryland is the Mission Fulfillment Officer at Love, Serve, Remember, a management company that oversees seven Southern California restaurants under three names, Cafe Gratitude, Gratitude, and Gracias Madre, all of which are amazing, by the way. Uh, Empowered with new research on regenerative agriculture's power to heal our planet in 2013, Ryland also co-founded Kiss the Ground, which is an education and advocacy NGO working to transform our food system based in Venice. So dude's up to some really good things in the world. And uh, he just has a great vibe. He's just a really sweet human being. And I'm so grateful that I get to sit down and have conversations with cats like this. It's just, uh, it's a good life, man. What can I say? In this interview with Ryland, here's what we discuss. How the landmark forum was a turning point for him and his family the future of organic farming and how raising livestock and all other food in a regenerative way could save the planet. The common misconceptions about farming using animals. The sometimes misleading labeling system we have for food and how to avoid getting duped by fake marketing. His vision of living in harmony with nature and a community of like-minded people. His family's empire of healthy restaurants and how that came to be how plant medicines have shaped his worldview, the future of conscious entrepreneurship and how to create a supportive company culture, why cold brew coffee is so much healthier than hot brew, how his family dealt with the backlash from militant animal rights activists when they began to use animals in their farming practices. And we learned the details on how cattle are slaughtered according to humane certification, how to wade through the misinformation from the plant-based farming films and get to the science and real facts of regenerative agriculture, the mysterious brilliance of biodynamic farming. And as I said, this conversation was truly inspiring to me and one that I believe needs to be shared for the sake of our planet and the future of our food. But before we jump into this conversation, let's take a sneak peek into our upcoming episodes. This Sunday, we've got my guest spot on the Almost 30 podcast as a bonus show where I talk about the intersection of plant medicines and addiction recovery. Then next Tuesday, we've got the deep science of blue light toxicity and why LED trashes your health with Dr. Alexander Wunsch. And I'm going to tell you what, straight up, that is not an episode you want to miss. So make sure you subscribe to the show so you don't miss any of the upcoming episodes. Uh, If you think food's important, wait till you hear what Dr. Wunsch has to say about our lighting environment. It's insane. Okay, now it's time to roll up your sleeves and get to work with our guest and my friend, Ryland Inglehart. All right, Ryan, here we are in the woods in Atlanta, Georgia, the land of Walking Dead. How are you doing today? Feeling uh, feeling great. Yeah, feeling, uh, waking up here uh, at Serenby. It's quite uh, an exquisite, exquisite place. Definitely one of the big visions of my life is to live on land with community and creating a space to raise children and to demonstrate that we can live in a much more harmonious way in relationship to the earth. So to see a vision fulfilled uh, in the way that Serum B is such that I can, I mean, such as, as much as I can see, it seems to be uh, that 
And so it's really a, a sweet thing to uh, see a, a dream fulfilled and to be here and to walk around the property and premise and the organic farm today with my little 17-year-old son and just to feel the prana, the life of nature all around. Feels good. It does feel good. I give a sigh of relief to that too. Mm. <laughs> I always feel good when I get into the country. You know, as soon as I get away from mass civilization, my nervous system just turns down about 10 notches. I was talking to someone last night and what's your favorite city? This is my favorite city. And they said, oh, I love London. And yeah, as far as cities go, London's cool. But if I, if I had my choice to like get on a plane and go somewhere, it would at this point in my life never be a city. Um, so I'm stoked to be here. I'm stoked to talk to you. Last time I saw you was at the Air One in Calabasas and we had a brief but really engaging chat and I've looked forward to uh, diving deeper with you ever since. So let's go ahead and start off with um, your family of origin, your family business, the Cafe Gratitude empire and the ups and downs of that. Um, I've sort of been watching it from afar and as a customer at the different locations. I think I've been to the one in LA the mission in San Francisco, and then at one point one in Healdsburg, um, some years ago, which is where right near my, where my mom lives. So, um, being someone who's lived in LA thirty years and watching different, you know, organic and healthy restaurants kind of blossom, um, there was a point at which, like, the only sort of seemingly healthy food you could get were like fake meat vegan restaurants just made of soy and wheat <laughs> products, which at the time seemed healthy. And then, you know, you got some juice spots like you guys popped up and things like that. So I guess just kind of start there and give me a little origin story around how you and your family got involved in this. Beautiful. So let's see. Yeah. Going all the way back, my mother left my father when I was about when I was 20 years old and she left him for another woman. And that was a kind of his life fell apart. And he, I had did, did something called the landmark forum uh, when I was 18 and uh, he had, I had always invited him to go do it and he resisted it. And uh, when his life fell apart, he, he said he was going to try something new because his, all his tools and his tool belt weren't working. And he ended up uh, going through it, loving it, having an amazing transformative experience of finding himself again, finding his feet on solid ground. And he ended up meeting a woman named Tercis who was re leading courses at, at Landmark and they fell in love. And at that time, they, they were she was 54 and he was 45. And... They said, all right, let's spend a year of our lives really looking at what we want to birth, give birth to. And uh, Tercy had come through a 25 years of eating disorder, had lost her teeth and, you know, it was wow, like... Oh, that's like a, a long time. It was, it was a big, a big, yeah, like a uh, huge deal. And her path of recovery brought her to, you know, many things, but one of the things was Landmark. And um, my dad had always been a spiritual seeker. And so when they got together, they were, they really said, let's listen to our inner guidance and find out what wants to come through us. And they spent a year in contemplation, meditation, reflection. And what came through to them was 
to create a transformational board game, uh, which was ended up becoming called be, being called the Abounding River board game, and essentially it was a board game to shift our view from scarcity, not enoughness, to abundance, to gratitude, and they contracted an artist and created this beautiful board game. And that became the reason to open Cafe Gratitude was actually, they were at the same time they were developing the game. They were also, we have a organic uh, fruit and vegetable farm in Maui uh, called La Lima. And they had a neighbor who was a total fanatical raw foodist at the time. Uh, this is, late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah, yeah, late 90s, yeah. And they tried raw, being raw for 30 days. They felt really great. They started having raw dinner parties and having people come over and play the board game. And they got challenged by one of their friends to, you know, the way that you should get your game out there is create a restaurant, a cafe, invite people in with the carrot of food, and then you can give them this transformational view of gratitude and abundance while customers come in for a juice or a coffee. And so that was the, you know, we had no, they had no restaurant experience. They, they were actually on their way to a yoga class, saw uh, a lease for rent in San Francisco, 20th and Harrison in the Mission District in San Francisco, still kind of a, a, a seedy neighborhood. And they signed the lease and <laughs> we, we, they, they opened it with, you know, 14 employees, most family, most of them family members. And, you know, the idea was that it was a, a raw food transformational gaming parlor in San Francisco. And every, every, every table in the restaurant had the game inset on the table. And we didn't, have, we didn't have a stove. We didn't have a hood. It was all, all raw food. The only thing we had a miso broth and a quinoa cooker and, or a rice cooker that we cooked quinoa in it. And, um, you know, that was, the, that was the early days. And really it was the, the idea was we're inviting people in to a new view of life. And that was the view that, you know, in every moment, no matter what our circumstances are, there's always something we can be grateful for. And by doing that, that it nows us instead of being in the future, trying to get something or regret in the past, it brings us into a state of fulfillment. And, and that was that was the desire. That was what we wanted to give people the presence of and access to. And so uh, at the time I was actually living in uh, Los Angeles and I had actually come through, me and my sister had opened a commercial recording studio in, in Los Angeles in North Hollywood. And uh, that, that kind of crashed and burned after the whole Napster thing. The music industry took a total tank. No one was buying music anymore. And so we ended up selling our recording studio and I went from someone who had her owning a recording studio and was totally on the scene in LA at, at 20 years old, running a you know, commercial recording studio in the hip hop and R&B industry to losing everything. We had to sell our house, sell our equipment. And then I was the host at Follow Your Heart, the vegan restaurant out in the valley in Canoga Park. And Oh yeah, I've been there. Yeah. Uh, it's, I mean, it's a classic. It's been the same since the 70s. Um, Is that the one that's in the health food yeah, store? Yeah, it's in the back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So... Yeah, that was that was actually a big uh, a big 
you know, ego death moment where one of the, uh, uh, you know, a celebrity at the time from a, you know, a, a young R&B hip hop group came in to follow your heart. And I went from, I used to be the guy who ran the studio to now the, the guy brown bagging the to-go order. Um, and I just remember that going just like totally just surrendering to this is, this is what life looks like right now. That's great. Uh, Stevia sweetened humble pie. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Um, but yeah, so at that, at, so from that point, I, I, I had kind of a, a crash and burn in LA, um, a moment of losing my way. And I called my dad kind of in tears, just like, hey, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know where I'm going. And I wanted to know if I could come work with you because they were just in the you know first probably six months of opening Cafe Gratitude. And I called them, went up, and the idea was that I was going to go to San Francisco to work with them and learn the business uh, with the hopes that I could come back within a year or two and open a restaurant in Los Angeles. And so I ended up doing that, but it ended up taking probably five years before it, it was about five, it was five years before we ended up coming back to LA and opening uh, the first of seven restaurants um, in, in the Los Angeles area. So, uh, you know, it was, uh, really the, I think the thing that, uh, people probably didn't get about Cafe Gratitude was most restaurants start and are, their intention is really just to serve food and even, you know, healthy food, but really our vision and mission was, was actually much more committed to the gratitude component than the cafe component. The way that that was, uh, set up within our restaurants is we would, we do things, we have something called a clearing where we actually invite our staff and we call them advocates, our employees to, uh, go through a process called clearing, uh, which is simply asking two questions or sometimes can just be one question. Uh, and that question, it's a two question clearing. It could be a question like, what are you pretending right now? Or where are you feeling insecure? And giving people an opportunity to check in with what is in their internal state so that they can get honest about it and um, hmm. bring some self-awareness to it. And then a second question could be something like, what are you grateful for? Or what do you love about your life? You want to you 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 tr try the process? Sure. <laughs> okay. So let's uh, do it because I wanted to ask you a bit about uh, landmark too. I was going to jump back to that. So this is a good, good segue into that. Cause my, when I was a kid, my mom uh, did a bit of est and, yeah. and that kind of stuff. So I was like, Oh, I wanted to learn the correlation, but yeah, let's do stuff. Yeah. Cool. So Luke, uh, can I ask you a question? Yes. Uh, so what's your biggest concern right now in life? In the macrocosm of life? Uh, it, personally, it, yeah. with, with not just yeah. in this moment, this yeah. weekend. Yeah. Um, my biggest concern in life, I would say, oh man, it's funny. Like nothing's coming to mind, but like if I wasn't asked the question, I would be constantly thinking about those things on some yeah. days. Um, concern in life, I would say, I'm very bothered by the fact that I pay someone else's mortgage, and uh, I'm concerned about buying a house and not throwing cash down the toilet every month. Mm. Yeah. That's kind of what's, what's on my mind. 
And that also includes finding a way to escape the clutches of Los Angeles after 30 years and still do what I do as effectively as as I do. So it's kind of the biggest concern is kind of the housing situation, where, the where, and the how. Perfect. So uh, what I heard you say is that your biggest concern right now in life in the macrocosm is this feeling of you don't want to be just throwing money down the drain and how and where to buy a house. And if you do that, and if you're able to get yourself out of the clutches of Los Angeles, where would you go? And would you be still able to do effectively what you are doing right now in life? And the concern, if you can, if you can make all that happen. Very good reflection. No wonder you have a lasting um, relationship. <laughs> your wife must love the, your ability to do that. I've found in relationship that when somebody really feels heard, especially females, it's very productive. Yeah, I think. Yeah. I think that that's. I like that style. That kind of imago type of communication because so much is lost in the ambiguity of interpretation, right? Oh, so what you're saying is you're like afraid that you don't have enough money? No, no, I didn't say that. <laughs> just, it's just the strategy, you know. So, yeah, that's great. Okay, carry on. Yeah, and so when your attention's on that story or, or or on that 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 idea that you're thinking about and mulling over in your head, what's the emotional experience that comes along? when your attention's on that? The emotional experience when my attention is on that is, um, I would say it's just a bit of tension and tightness and it could be located, I would say mostly in my chest. It's kind of like a sinking in, like, uh, how am I going to do this? What's the answer? How's this going to work out? And so it's not really fear because it's not that acute. It's not really anxiety because it's not like a projected fear of being hurt or losing something or not getting something. It's just more of like a bit of a tension in the unknowing and the confusion. Mm, and so that, tension, yeah. confusion, a little ambiguity, and it feels, you feel it or it feels held in your chest. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I think it's like a it's a heart it's a heart yearning to have a home and to do what I want to do with that home and to have it be in a place that feels in alignment energetically. And so it's a it's a yearning of like a heartache to have something that really feels like home. Mm. I think that's where that the sort of tension of longingness comes from and why it's probably in my heart. Mm. Yeah, so, so that's what I intuit. Yeah, so there's a there's a feeling of a it's a heart yearning for feeling that experiencing that home and that what you want to do with that home and having that where it is being aligned and uh, yeah so the feeling is somewhat that the inability or that there's not that heart yeah there's some constriction around the heart yes. Great. Thank you yeah, for sharing. Maybe that. like a ba- a baby boa constrictor, not an anaconda, thankfully. Yeah, <laughs> yeah baby, baby boa constrictor. But you know, we have these, sometimes we have these um, sort of unsolved riddles that sort of 
burn in the background, like when you have a bunch of apps open on your phone and it yeah. drains your battery, that yeah. that would be one of mine. That's kind of like, it's fine. Like yeah. it's not a problem totally. that needs to be solved. It's yeah. just like, hmm, there's that thing, yeah. you know? And uh, so, yeah, that's, that's a great, a baby boa constrictor. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to use that. <laughs> yeah. It's just kind of sliding around the about the chest area, you know, not really hugging too tight. It doesn't have that much power, but it, there's still a felt presence, I guess you could say. Yeah. Beautiful. Can I ask you another question? Yeah. What do you love about your life? What I love about my life is that I get to spend a lot of time inspiring people and helping people. Yeah, I love that I have the impact that I have. However mm-hmm. insignificant it might be in the grand scope of things, it's a meaningful contribution to me. Mm. getting messages from people every single day that they're benefiting from the things that I'm sharing. I think that's probably what's most important. Mm. Mm. Well, I'd love to acknowledge you for just the courage to show up and expose yourself and share in a way, because I know that if you're touching people, you're actually opening yourself up and you're actually going beyond your comfort and you're going beyond the mundane and you're really sharing intimately with your audience. And I just want to acknowledge, I want to acknowledge you for making your life about creating stories and creating narratives and weaving information that uplifts and inspires people. And, uh, yeah, thank you from the bottom of my heart for yeah, stepping into that this role. It's really awesome. You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> so that that would be considered a clearing. Cool. Uh God, it sure beats the hell out of small talk. Yeah. It does. Uh, How are you doing today? Oh good. It's traffic. It's uh, the <laughs> <laughs> I like, But I, 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 I like I like intimacy and I like relating on a deep level. I'm just someone I want to really know. I think that's why I do what I do. I really want to know what's inside and not the facade of what we think uh, people want to see. I find conversations, even brief ones like that, are more meaningful than talking to someone about the weather for four hours. You know? <laughs> totally. Yeah. I, I, I've literally had moments where I think I'm crazy because I, I listen to the conversations that are happening all around and I'm like, is this really all we talk about? I, I mean, it's like, I think sometimes I'm from another planet. I'm like, is this, is that like everywhere we go? We just, it, you know, it's, and it's actually, one of the things I, I there's this thing called um, council, uh, sitting in council, where you, it's like a a formatted conversation for community to commune and connect and understand each other, and it comes from kind of an indigenous lineage, and essentially it's it allows for people to sit and be heard, and the only rules of sitting in council is um, speak from the heart, listen from the heart speak with brevity and speak with spontaneity. And, uh, you know, you kind of open up a a conversation with a question. Everyone gets to have a moment of sharing and then you close that conversation and open up another conversation. And just this beautiful, in in a moment in my life where I was like really seeking for more meaningful conversation, uh, it was really a beautiful thing to find and find uh, 
to be able to sit in a circle of people having a conversation that was like, wow, I can tell that human being is, you know, really there sharing from their heart. And so, yeah. And back to acknowledging you, I really appreciate that. And I think, you know, in this moment, I'm just getting this now moment that I feel maybe that the reason for the whole podcast space phenomenon is that it has become a space where there is more meaningful conversations happening, which we're longing to be a part of. And so I think you're absolutely right. It's, um, it's an exciting time in terms of independent media right now, although there are ominous signs of repression and censorship upon us, not even signs. I mean, it's happening, um, unfortunately, but right now, for the most part within the space of podcasting, um, I think we have more freedom than other forms of media. Mm -hmm. I mean, perhaps you could have a blog and you could write the craziest shit you ever can think of and then people would leave you alone. But, um, you know, YouTube's pretty heavily censored and um, Facebook's heavily censored. Google in general is, you know, rigged. And um, so podcasts are kind of like the last place, I think, unless you're Alex Jones. He's the only person I've known to be banned from iTunes as a on a podcast, which is a travesty for um, everyone's free speech. It's kind of, you know, it's a that's where the um, downward slide always begins, you know, when any society demonizes and silences one person because they can judge them as wrong, then it's, you know, it gets dangerous for the rest of us that are wanting to touch upon anything that's mildly controversial. But to your point, I think it's still a really exciting time because you can have a show like this and like thousands of others where you can have deep and meaningful conversations about whatever you want with whomever you want. And um, we're not beholden to the monetization element of that media. And um, I think in podcasts, that's the case probably in any other form of media, because even in uh, YouTube, it's like, you know, they have very strict rules about what you can talk about and what you can't. And they, you know, blacklist you and demonetize your page if you do anything controversial, which used to be just political. You know, that's where they started it. And then now it's moved into... Um, the kind of battle between medical and big pharma and alternative health, you know, and you see a lot of people getting banned, but on podcasts, um, my advertisers don't seem to care what I talk about. And if they did, if they said, Oh, I don't want you to talk about, I won't use the V word because I could get banned, but immunizations, uh, we don't want you to talk about that or circumcision or some of the somewhat controversial things that I've covered on the show, because I feel it's important. Um, if my advertiser said, we're not going to pay your fees. If you talk about this or that, then I wouldn't work with them and I would just do it for free <laughs> or I'd find someone that paid less or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, so, you know, my optics for Sigmatic, I mean, all the great companies that support the show and my staff and all that, they, they love what I talk about. They don't care. They're probably like, yeah, the more, the deeper the conversations and even sometimes the more controversial perhaps they are, the better because it's um, opening minds and those open minds are actually going to be more receptive to trying a new product um, or service, you know, that maybe they are not familiar with. So yeah, it's, it's fucking awesome. And also the fact that we don't have, for the most part with podcasts, you don't have a time limit. And I remember when I first started, I thought, well, you know, how do you do a podcast? Okay. Well, you have to, you know, find a guest, you have to find a topic, you kind of have to make a genre that you want to, stay within uh, to some degree. 
And then you have to have like a schedule every week of what day it comes out. Uh, and then you have to time it, right? <laughs> so I thought, well, I'll make them an hour. And I think the first few, I would kind of like be watching the clock. Okay, we're almost in an hour and I'd wrap it up, you know? But then I started getting into these conversations that would just get so deep and so profoundly meaningful to me. I'm just forgetting about the mics and cameras, but I'm just going, oh my God, I'm benefiting so much. I'm having these awakenings, awakenings and conversations. And then... Next thing you know, they'd be going like 90 minutes, two hours, and some of them gone like three and a half hours. And I don't want them to because I don't think people probably have the time to to listen listen to something three and a half hours long. But I also just can't cut it off because it's like, you don't know if that same magic is going to align next time. So say you and I go and we're like an hour in and I'm like, okay, there's 10 of the things I wanted to cover with Ryland. I'll just do that next time we record. Even if we do get around to doing like a part two or a follow-up, we're going to be in a different place and those those juicy nuggets would have been missed, you know, the missed opportunity. So um, it's, it's a, a, a overly long response to your question because I'm so enthusiastic about what I get to do and the fact that for right now at this moment in time um, on podcasts, we do have a lot of freedom in terms of what we can say, which is great. Um, and I'm hopeful that someone will stand up um, for the First Amendment um, soon. I mean, I do what I can to spread awareness by talking about these issues. Some people don't even realize, you know, David Wolf was just um, banned from Facebook. David Wolf is just like a dude that talks about health food. And and the flat earth. Yeah. <laughs> but I, mean, I love David. Yeah. Uh, but like, he's not doing anyone any harm, you know, like, totally hey, there's, not. he's a great there's, human being. There's alternative um, treatments for, can- you know, it's probably something to have to do with cancer or vaccines or something like that. But it's, it's a terrifying time when you, you know, on a social platform um, where they operate under the guise that their private company therefore can't be regulated and they can have who they want and who they don't want on their platform. It's a really slippery slope because then even if you're like, oh, David Wolf, that nutty hippie, the flat earther guy, whatever, who cares if they kick him off? Well, they're <laughs> yeah. coming for your you channel next. next. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Unless you toe the line and, you know, <laughs> right. uh, in this Orwellian totalitarian uh, regime that's kind of being created with our, our mainstream media and, and um, big tech, unless you fall within those guidelines and, you know, don't step out of line, you could be next. So it's, it's gnarly. I mean, I, I try not to change the people I talk to or what we talk about, but I am a little more mindful now because it's not only like your mission, purpose, and job as a content creator like me, but it's like how I buy my Cheerios, you know what I'm saying? Um, so I guess you just find something else if you get nuked, but I really, <laughs> I feel, I, I, you know, and I, and I will, I'll adapt. I've had a lot of different jobs, you know, I'd find a new job if like iTunes says, oh, you can't talk about natural healing or spirituality or you know, psychedelics or whatever weird things I might talk about. So anyway, here we are. We can do whatever the hell we want, but I want to go back to, yeah, let's go back. Okay. Uh, to Landmark Forum because I went to, I think, a one-day Landmark thing down in a hotel by LAX mm-hmm. maybe 10 years ago or something because I'm just a seeker and anything I find out about that is going to help you, um, I'll go to. And I was playing in a band with a guy who had been through a lot of the programming and it seemed to really help him. And so... When I went, I somehow connected the dots that this was somehow um, in the lineage of Warner Earhart, the founder of Est, which was really big in the 70s, as far as I recall. And my mom was always talking about uh, Est says this and Est says that. And I think she had done some of the seminars. So it was, it was 
an interesting correlation to find like, oh, because I always wondered what happened to Est. It was such a thing. And then maybe if I have the history right, which we'll find out, it morphed into this other thing. And tell me a bit about that. And then um, what it was like integrating that into your business as you described. And was there um, blowback from any employees that did not want to be part of that or thought it was culty or didn't have any framework by which to contextualize those types of conversations and that type of company culture. Yeah. Uh, so I did the Landmark Forum when I was 18 years old in New York City, actually on the 14th floor of the World Trade Towers before they fell, a few years before they fought, fell. And it was an amazing... I, I explicitly remember I took a Greyhound up there and I walked around New York City two hours uh, you know, I'm from up, I'm from Ithaca, New York, so kind of upstate New York boy, country country boy, coming into the city, and I had this idea that if I at, if I if I if I looked like I didn't know where I was going, what I was doing, I'd be taken advantage of. So I had this fear walking around New York City trying to figure out where to go. It was pre every you know smartphones and you know, and so I walked around for two hours, not wanting to ask for direction because I was afraid that I'd be taken advantage of. <laughs> Finally asked a police officer uh, and, and got to where I was going. And I did this three-day course, um, again, yeah, on the 14th floor. And it was everybody from Wall Street bankers to, you know, kids from the Puerto, you know, Puerto Rican kids from the South Bronx to soccer moms. You know, it was, it was really to... Uh, rabbis to, I mean, it was just a really eclectic group of people. And I had a really profound insight, which was that everybody is afraid of everybody else and that we're all pretending like we know what we're doing <laughs> and we're all just making it up. <laughs> and it, it, I mean, everybody is having that on some subtle level, that experience. And when I got, oh my God, everybody is just afraid of everybody else. And it, it gave me this freedom and this ability to um, be a little bit more loose in the world and play uh, outside of my confines, which was so, you know, I, I, I graduated high school reading at a fifth grade level had you know attention deficit disorder dyslexia I was in the resource room all throughout uh, high school and I didn't go to college because I thought I was stupid I thought I didn't have the capacity to you know pursue higher education and so when I had this realization that everybody was afraid of everybody else and everybody was pretending like they knew what they were doing, but really they were just making it up. It just, it, it created a, a new view that actually gave me uh, some freedom to start playing and trying things that in my construct of not, in, you know, I, I could see that I had labeled things that I was not interested in because that was actually just a creative way for my mind to label things that I was actually afraid of or felt like I was insecure or insignificant or didn't have the skill set to pursue. And so, uh, you know, just that really just opened me up to, wow, anything is possible. I really, I really had an experience of 
seeing my limitation and seeing the, the possibility beyond my story and my limitation. And I've probably personally throughout my life put maybe two, three, four, five hundred people through the courses. And, um, you know, nothing's perfect, uh, you know, but as far as what people can break through in three days in an evening, as far as the mental constructs, our past dictating, you know, a, our future, I've never seen something more powerfully have people one create a new relationship with parents that have, they've been estranged from or broken from, or, you know, abuse, addiction, dysfunction. So that I've just saw unbelievable. And then just people who were lived their lives from a moment of trauma and they see that they, their lives have been completely shaped because that one moment, then getting, oh, wow, I'm living my life based on the decision of a seven-year-old. And like the sky is blue, I now know that I don't have to be who I was, you know, three days ago. And yeah, I've just seen remarkable, remarkable results. And again, my dad had, you know, a, a big realization after my mom left him. Uh, which led to his marriage with Terces and a lot of that, the, the technology or the sort of the psychological ideas and constructs. And again, Landmark is, you know, it was, it was, it was uh, a, or a, an evolution of Est and Warner Earhart was the, the founder. And then it, I think it became owned by the employees that, that were original found or working with, with Warner and Est. But yeah, we never, we never had any official tie with Landmark, but people definitely, uh, you know, we once got a little heavy handed in telling all of our managers, if you wanted to be a manager, you have to go through Landmark Forum. And, uh, you know, people wanted to become a manager, but they didn't want to go through that. And because we were somewhat eager beaver about it, it landed a little heavy handed. And um, I think, you know, in the Bay Area, we had some controversial news coming out about that we were... I mean, people have talked about Cafe Gratitude as a cult, you know, a, f a few times over the years, just, you know, based on the spiritual nature of our business that, you know, the, the way you order food is by saying an I am affirmation that we have questions of the day that we're, you know, we're, we're not only serving you food, we're inviting. And in the early days, we were a little bit more radical in that, you know, we were a little in, more in your face, like, <laughs> so what are you grateful for today? And I'm going to stand here and wait for you to share your answer versus like, uh, you can't ask me that you're serving. No, no, that's part of the deal here is, we, you know, we engage, I'll share you what I'm grateful. I'll share with, um, with you what I'm grateful for. And we, we were definitely, uh, we definitely were pushing the edge of wanting people to experience some discomfort because we, you know, at the time really saw that, you know, comfort is a sedative. We know we're not, we're not growing when we're just kind of in a sedated, comfortable state. And so we were wanting to instigate and disrupt and have new conversations. If we just sit over dinner and talk about the weather, but if there's a conversation of what moves you from your head to your heart, inserted, posited into the interaction, that actually can stimulate a, a new, more meaningful, transformative, healing conversation. And we were committed to that. And we wanted to, you know, the, the bigger vision was we want gratitude to be in, in culture. Like the question of what are you grateful for 
as a normal question that we ask each other. What are you grateful for today? As like, yeah, let's, let's, let's lean into that. That's so much, um, it's going to get such a better net result than how you doing? What's up? What's new? (laughs) Totally. It's like, if you just go, what's going on to someone because of the negativity bias, unless you've worked really hard to overcome that through all the modalities that that are successful in so doing, uh, your automatic response is going to be like, ah, fuck man, my alarm didn't go off the thing. Then she said this, he said this, you know, I mean, it's kind of just like, we're wired to look for what's wrong. Mm-hmm. evolutionarily uh, I think really because in our environment take away civilization and our environment we're constantly looking for what's wrong or what we can eat right and so now there's really nothing to be afraid of we're in we're indoors there's no predation there's, you know we're, we're 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 safe but the mind still that ancient mammalian brain of ours or reptilian brain or maybe both is um is going to automatically kind of look for what's wrong so it's a it's a good NLP sort of trick to psychologically trick your default mode into going, oh, wait, there are actually a bunch of things. And I like what you were saying earlier about, um, you know, that there's always something to be grateful for too. And I find that's a really useful kind of spot check tool right in the moment. And I used it the other night, uh, a couple of nights ago when I flew into Atlanta here, um, because I had arrived to the airport in not enough time for Delta to get my bag on the flight, those a-holes at Delta lost my bag. <laughs> and so when I got to the airport in Atlanta, you know, the, and this never ha- I never, they never lose my bag. I'm always kind of like wondering if that's a real thing because people complain about it a lot. <laughs> I've been very lucky and my bags are heavy and they are expensive, son. Like the shit I keep in my luggage is like all my tools and gear. Trick. Yeah, I mean, it's not like a normal person's suitcase at all. I'm working on it. Um, but anyway, so I get a text from Delta. Oh, your bag's in LA still. <laughs> you know? And of course, that first thought is like, those assholes. Second thought is, Luke, you arrived to the airport in LA, a massive clusterfuck of an airport, one hour exactly before your flight left. That's not enough time. So it's your bad. Don't blame yourself, but let's just be honest. Get out of the victim <laughs> mode. But then the very next thought was because of the, the the forced habit over the years was like, oh, thank God I have my carry-on that has a bunch of really important stuff and I have my backpack. Oh man, it's so awesome. I have my laptop and I have all my recording gear, you know, with the exception of half of a tripod that was in the big suitcase. But my mind went to first, like what is still right instead of what's wrong. Mm-hmm. And then walking up to the line to go talk to the, you know, the people in the baggage. I wanted to be mad at someone back there, just vent on an innocent person just to punish them and feel better myself. I saw that thought come up and I was like, nope, not having that. And I just put on a big smile and opened my heart and walked up to the lady and she's defensive, waiting for an angry, annoyed person because she's probably had 150 of them in her face that day. And I just said, hey, how are you doing? And I was just super happy. She really thought I was a mental patient, you know, because I was just like, I'm just full of, I'm just blissed out because, you know, my bag's missing and it's, I'm tired and it's late. And, you know, I could see her transform her energy just went like into receptivity because, mm. because of that, just a, just a micro adjustment in my own attitude through that mm. self-awareness. And, mm. you know, was I stoked to not have my bag? No. Did, did, was it supposed to show up? at 11 and then didn't show up till three 30 in the morning. Yeah. You know, it wasn't a perfect transaction, but I had all the shit I needed. And it's like that experience was whatever my mind was going to make it. And I just had a little 
exertion of will available to me mm. and a little awareness to transmute it into like not that big of a deal, mm. you know. But that's just from like thinking, well, what can I be grateful for right now? And that just that, you know, knee jerk reaction of like, well, I have that bag and I have that bag. What's in them? Oh, this cool thing, that cool thing. And then it was like, okay. You know, and then I thought I was missing a toothbrush and I ended up finding my backup toothbrush in my carry-on because that's the shit you don't want to, you know, you got to have your toothbrush. (laughs) All the rest of that garbage is whatever, but man, anyway, um, I digress. I need to reach across the room and grab my coffee because I felt like I was getting too hyper to finish it. And now, but now I feel too relaxed. (laughs) And so I'm going to find that poor man's speedball of caffeine and CBD. Hmm. Uh, so what I want to talk to you about now is let's, uh, divert from historical context. Thank you for that. Got that. Where are the businesses at right now? Like you mentioned you had seven in LA at some point, which I didn't realize I only been to the Venice one and the, um, like, uh, uh Larchmont one. How many are there in LA West coast right now? Cause I know a couple have closed and open and whatnot. Yeah. So we, we have, uh, right now, we have a Gracias Madre in San Francisco. That's the original one that we opened down there or the, up there. Uh, and then we have in LA, we have seven. We have Gracias Madre in West Hollywood. I went there for brunch just about six days ago. Awesome. Uh, and then we're opening a new Gracias Madre in Orange County in Newport Beach on the 15th of this month. So that's opening. Uh, we actually closed down a gratitude that was down there when we're reopening as a Gracias Madre. Uh, and then we have four cafe gratitudes in Southern California, one in Venice, one in downtown LA, one on Larchmont, and then one in uh, San Diego. And then our one final kind of uh, anomaly restaurant that's a little uh, outside of those two is it's called Gratitude and it's a higher end gratitude with a full bar and a different menu than Cafe Gratitude. So, and that's actually what we just closed down in Newport Beach and reopened as a Gracias Madre. Oh, okay. Interesting. You know, I forgot I have been to the downtown LA one too. Yeah. I was there a couple months ago. It's right across from Bulletproof, uh, Bulletproof Coffee. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, so business business has been you know, it it's been an unbelievable experience opening Cafe Gratitude in LA. We opened March 4th of 2011 and it was like the most I mean, it, 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 it was mind it was mind blowing. I, I we came to LA and there was a seed vision in my mind that we were going to come to LA and we were going to bring a new cuisine to the mainstream and we're going to bring a new consciousness of business to the mainstream. And, you know, what I can say is that it feels like it's happened. It really, you know, we've gone from the margins to the mainstream uh, when it comes to plant-based, organic, health and wellness food and the, you know, the, 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 some of the funny things, like when we first opened Cafe Gratitude, people asked me, if, is vegan a planet? <laughs> they thought that was the name of a planet, vegan. Um, I, I literally wow. remember that. As a, and then some people would ask me, um, how do you get milk out of almonds? And I would playfully say they've got little nipples. And if you grab a hold of them, you can, you can get milk out of them. It's difficult, but it's, it's possible. But now almond milk is ubiquitous. I mean, it's, 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 
it's everywhere. And, you know, even things like cold brew coffee didn't, wasn't, wasn't a product on the market when we, when we were serving it in Cafe Gratitude in the early days. And now it's like Billboard 7-Eleven. So it's, it, it, it really is. Um, What's the deal with cold brew coffee? What's the purpose of doing it that way? Low acid. Oh. So less, less difficult on the body because it's a much lower acid content in the coffee with the hot brewing versus the cold brewing. Cool. I didn't know that. That's interesting. You know what? I, how I hacked the acidity of coffee was um, by making big crock pots of chaga tea mm. by taking just chunks of chaga that I would get on eBay. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can, you know, it's like 50 bucks for five pounds or something. You know? yep. It only takes a couple little nugs in the crock pot and you have like a really thick, brew, kind of yeah. dense brew, you know? And so I'd use that as the basis of the coffee. And it's so much more smooth than um, an alkaline mm. because chaga is alkaline. So yeah, yeah. But oh, I because I love like this coffee right here is from the restaurant here, and it's um, it's super acidic. I like the bitter taste, but I can tell it's like it's a little drying mm. to the body. You know, it has that sort of astringent mm-hmm. um, uh, element to it. So cool. Okay, so cold brew. So you yeah. So it's it just uh, and and again, I I think the for me personally, what it's provided is. Like, wow, when, when you have an idea and the timing is right and you offer something, a, there can be a collective view change, which actually is what I'm going to talk about today is that the, the, the view change of plant-based vegan food from 15 years ago to now is, it's remarkable the shift in consciousness of how much things have changed and how much something was in a complete very, very marginal state of awareness. And now it's become part of the collective lexicon of understanding. So yeah, so we, we opened, we have, you know, seven restaurants in Southern California, the CAF or the Gracias Madre in San Francisco. My dad's wife, my stepmom has an oldest son who has a restaurant in Santa Cruz, uh, which is called Grateful for Santa Cruz. That It's very like a Cafe Gratitude, but it's his own little, you know, Santa Cruz you know, spinoff. It's called Grateful for Santa Cruz. And then we kind of have a handshake franchise with some folks out in Kansas City. There's a Cafe Gratitude in Kansas City that's actually been there for seven, eight years and it's doing well. And yeah, so that's, so that's that. And, you know, as a business, we have some restaurants that are um, doing great and some that are struggling. And, you know, you know, my perception of that and how, where that, how that has been is that I think we probably opened too many in the Los Angeles area and we kind of diluted ourselves. And then while we were doing that and while we were kind of uh, ushering in this, you know, conversation, obviously with many other people around plant-based, nutrient-dense, healthy, clean food, the, you know, that became such a commonplace thing where even if restaurants weren't exclusively plant-based. They had a plant-based offering. They had a kale and quinoa bowl. They had, you know, cold brew coffee. They had adaptogenic mushroom tonic lattes. They had, you know, magnet milk. They had, you know, so, so many places have some components of that, which we had done like a, a full package of. Now there's many people doing many and doing them well. Um, and when you do something, we, we've done so many things uh, and it's hard to do so many things really well. When you do just a few things, you can easy to do those really, really well. And so I think, honestly, there's people that have done, you know, little 
parts. And, you know, I think that we've been an inspiration for many people. One, because you know, many people have shared that with me over the years. But, you know, you do a, a little more focused food program or beverage program and you can, you know, you can make it extraordinary. And I think we've tried to do so much um, that it's been difficult to uh, keep innovating uh, as well as keeping consistent, as well as, you know, continuing to grow, which we've done, you know, seven restaurants in the last eight years. So it's been, it's been a labor of love and it's been <laughs> difficult. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a restaurant business. I think everyone, you know, has, it has the stigma and the, the, the knowingness that it's a difficult world because you're interfacing with the general public and customer service and food. People are very particular about their food. And then, you know, employees and, you know, having 650 employees and the difficulty of creating an environment where people, uh, you know, we, we really set out to, and, you know, I'd say that we really set out to be this kind of utopian business model. And in a lot of ways, we've been successful in a lot of ways we've, you know, fallen on our face. You know, we, we have this principle within our business philosophy called sacred commerce, which is, uh, if a, if you have, if you're a sacred commerce business, you're have a, a, a pass a profitability, awakening, sustainability, and social justice. And so those are the four layers of, or the quadruple bottom line that you're kind of navigating your business from. And in the Bay Area for the first seven years that we were open just in San Francisco, we were really focused on the ASS, but we weren't that focused on the P. And, you know, we say we made an ass out of ourselves because we, you know, we, we had, we got some lawsuits and, uh, you know, we had some, uh, you know, economic downturn and, you know, we, we ended up closing, uh, six restaurants in the Bay Area, um, back in 2000. 10 and 2011. Um, oh, that would have been the fate of the Healdsburg spot. That's then, right. That yeah. I went in and then I felt like it wasn't there anymore. I was, so, I was excited because it was really close to my mom's house so, so I could get her food from there. So yeah, what that's a lot of uh, a lot of ups and downs and I, I feel for you because I, I used to work as a server for many years in the restaurant industry and it's, I mean, even just from, you know, that low level vantage point, it's, um, it's quite a roller coaster. Let's talk about the plant-based phenomenon, and um, I'm, you know, this is always something I'm very curious about because, due to the fact that when I got into healthy living and all this stuff in the, I guess it would have been like the mid '90s, I was unaware that there were healthy options of animal products to eat. I just thought you either are a vegetarian and you do the like, you know, raw vegan or mostly raw vegetarian. Uh, thing, or you have to eat factory farm meat or fast food. Like I didn't know there was anything in the middle because I didn't know any farmers are going to farmers markets and understand that there's a natural way to raise animals that makes them healthy. And there are less and more humane ways to end their life and take their energy and put it in you. So I was a vegetarian for, I don't know, close to 10 years or so. And uh, I've learned a lot about health since then. So I would say my vegetarian diet due to lack of knowledge and due to the uh, lack of availability of healthier vegetarian options was largely comprised of very inflammatory grains, legumes, um, you know, uh, uh, what are those uh, silo stored, you know, like uh, mono crops, you know, eating a lot of corn and all this kind of stuff. And, um, and so my health was corn, just- Corn, soy, wheat. All yep. that stuff. Yeah. And my health was just shit, you know? So now, I mean, I've had people that are 
vegan advocates and plant-based advocates on the show and I've had staunch ancestral paleo people. And um, I don't, I don't particularly like have a sort of religious dogmatic view on what one should or should need. I think eat whatever makes you feel good. I always say like, go eat a bucket of rocks. I really don't care what other people do. I was going to eat what feels good to me, which changes from time to time. And last night I was like craving the salad so bad, but I also hadn't eaten much. So I got some bison spare ribs that were fantastic. Um, so I got best of both worlds, but I now observe that they're um, based on my own experience of, of being what you'd call plant-based for the most part for so long that my health just fell apart. And I've met so many now because of what I do and the people that I just meet on the street, uh, like recovering vegans, you know, and recovering raw foodists who started, you know, their teeth started falling out and women that became infertile and all sorts of crazy problems as a result of eating, not my whack 90s version of vegetarian food, but like the best that a plant-based diet has to offer now. Yeah. And so it seems to me that, you know, close friends that I have and in my experience that uh, any extreme diet like that, whether it's the carnivore diet or a raw vegan diet, seems more like a transitional, maybe a detoxing diet. You know, the carnivore would be like an, an elimination diet where you don't eat anything remotely inflammatory. You eat salt, beef, and water, right? And then all these people, including my brother, have all of these sort of autoimmune issues and inflammation. It just all disappears. And many people that do the raw vegan thing have those experiences too. Mm. And then after some time, I think those extreme diets seem to have their downside. So at this point in your personal journey with food and, and that of a restaurant, um, where do you see kind of the pros and cons of having animal foods as part of your diet or not? Yeah, great question. So we, as a family, we were raised uh, vegetarian, macrobiotic, miso soup for breakfast, uh, hajiki seaweed, brown rice, beans. Um, my mom's first company was called The Benevolent Bean, making tempeh and a uh, little hippie business back in, in upstate New York. And so I was raised, I, I didn't, I, ha I ate my first, uh, I've only had chicken maybe twice in my whole life. Once at like you're not really missing it. <laughs> uh, once uh, in my in my opinion, and then I had uh, my first hamburger at 35, and that was I was a hamburger from a cow that we had uh, killed on our farm. That was part of uh, my dad's greater understanding of how to uh, manage a regenerative ecosystem on the farm and had one cow that was full grown and we didn't have space for it on the farm and we had one that had a blood disease. And so we uh, ended up, instead of, you know, sending those cows to be slaughtered somewhere else, we said, well, you know, they've been with us. Let's walk ourselves through this process and really be as uh, present with it and conscious of it and appreciative of them and make it quick and uh, as painless as possible. And, you know, that was uh, a, a big moment. Uh, you know, I was, I was, I was weeping in tears, you know, going through this process and... Were you present at the execution? Mm -hmm. Yeah. How did, how did they uh, do that? Putting uh, a gun above the eye level and then, uh, you know, and then when they're, you know, not, not aware and then. 
Like a bullet gun bullet, or one of the air gun. guns? Bullet okay. Gun. Not the old, no country for old men, the air gun no. thing. They, they seem to use that with pigs a lot from what I understand. And cow goes down and uh, it was, it was, yeah, it was very, very, very intense. And yeah, it was, yeah, super confronting to, to face. At 30, at being a vegetarian for 35 years, yeah, I bet. We'll be right back at you after this brief but important announcement. From listening to this show, you might have guessed that I'm pretty into my supplements. You know, the herbs, the mushrooms, the CBD, the natural stuff, the non-natural stuff. I'm just sort of a human guinea pig and my kitchen looks more like a science lab than it does somewhere where you prepare food. Which is always shocking when friends come over and want to cook some dinner. There's nothing to cook a lot of the time because I get home delivered meals and I gobble them up. I'm not a big grocery dude, but I do have an amazing collection of supplements. And uh, one of my favorites is a company called Cured Nutrition. They make mushroom and CBD blends, full spectrum nibbles, all these different tinctures, dog treats. And they work with your body's natural system to produce really clear benefits without the worry of any kind of psychoactive reaction or anything synthetic or anything like that. So uh, two of my favorite products from Cure to the Rise Nootropic Blend. That's really good for mental clarity, focus, memory, recording podcasts. It's got rhodiola, ginseng, CBD, lion's mane, cordyceps. Very unique product. These guys are doing some cool stuff with all these different blends. And you've got the Zen Nighttime Blend reishi, ashwagandha, magnesium, CBD. The effects of that are calming your ass down. If you're too hyper, you need some Zen nighttime blend. And of course, it's amazing for sleep and also um, your REM sleep, your dreaming. And you don't get groggy the next day like you do with some other sleep supplements that I notice sometimes if I pound a lot of melatonin and things like that, I wake up super brain dead. Then I have to take a bunch of the damn rise nootropic to wake up. But that's a really good one-two punch combo and these guys just have very high integrity and full transparency. You, know, you can look on their site at every single ingredient, where it comes from. They're based in Colorado. Shout out to Colorado. That's where I was born. Um, so I'm super stoked to be presenting Cured Nutrition to you guys. You can find them at curednutrition.com. That's C-U-R-E-D, cured, as in the cure to your ills. Curednutrition.com. And the code for 15% off at curednutrition.com is Lifestylist. That's Lifestylist for 15% off. Enjoy. And now back to the interview. I want to run something by you and I know my questions are sometimes very long, so just bear with me. It becomes conversational. I'm sure you're gathering that and I want to get back to that. But just on that note of witnessing the life force from that animal leaving its body and Although, you know, I think the most humane way you could kill an animal would be a shot to the head unknowingly, you know, not chasing them and then shooting them Um, and and witnessing that. And you said, you know, the crying and I too, I'm like a huge softy. And when I was a kid, my dad was a big hunter and I'd go out on the hunts and I would cry when they killed bears and different animals. And I always hated fishing. I love fishing, but once you have the fish, then you got to bang its head on the rock and like kill it before you clean it. And I just was always mortified by that. <laughs> or I'd go out shooting with my BB gun, I'd shoot birds and then I'd go up and see the bird dead and I'd feel so guilty, you know? Mm-hmm. I personally think that the reason that we, people of our, you know, similar generation and cultures, the reason that we find that to be so painful is because 
as we were weaned and reared throughout infancy into childhood, that that natural process of human life, the taking of other lives in order to sustain your own, was not something that we were subjected to because of the domestication of the human species, right? And, you know, you leave that to the butcher in the grocery store and it's all very white glove and you don't have anything to do with that integral part of human life as it relates to nature. Whereas let's go back 15,000 years or even, I mean, a couple hundred years, to be honest, if you lived in a rural area, kids like us, likely rather than growing up vegetarian, depending on where we were in the world, would have seen grandma like hacking the heads off chickens all day long in the backyard and, we would have prior seen uh, the men in the tribe come back with dead animals on the back of a horse or dragging them through the woods. Or mm-hmm. we would have been tasked uh, as kids going out and getting animals from traps and skinning them and cleaning them. And it's like, I think we're, again, my opinion and just a, a theory here, a philosoph- philosophical viewpoint on this is that the reason we see that as like a horror movie is because we grew up watching cartoons of animals being in human form with human voices and personalities. And then the only kind of insides of bodies we have seen have been in horror movies that are based on, you know, mayhem and torture. Yeah. And so we combine kind of our TV upbringing of cartoons. Animals are our friends with horror movies and we've never seen the real thing in real life where someone's just gutting a rabbit right there and you're a baby nursing, you know, on your mom and there's just, there's just blood and guts and broken up animals and they become a stew and you put them in the fire and it's just part of life to where you would perhaps have a reverence for the energy exchange of taking an animal's life. I mean, I'm imagining, you know, Native American traditions or something like that. It's not, it's not just like mindless, let's go kill a bunch of shit and throw it in the fire. It's, it's all very thoughtful, I think. And so, I think that's why that freaks us out. Yeah. What's your take on that? Yeah, it's a great assessment. Two things I want to say. One is there's this really beautiful uh, poem that Wendell Berry uh, shares, uh, which says, every day we must break the body and spill the blood of creation. If we do it knowingly, reverently, and carefully, it is a sacrament. If we do it with greed gluttony and carelessness it is a desecration and yeah what i what i hear in that and what that, what that resonate how that resonates for me is that if we really got that our life is you know we 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 belong to nature nature we you know we are a part of this living system that is this constant energy exchange of transference of energy and we got that our life and our ability to live depends on the the transference of that energy, which is that uh, you know food, whether it's you know the transference of sunlight captured into a plant or sunlight captured into a plant that's then eaten by an animal that then we capture that sunlight um, that the, the the animal captured from that plant. You know, it's all a transfer of energy, and that if we if yeah if 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 we're really connected to wow this life had to give its life gave its life up such that i could live and you know every meal is essentially that that there's something is dying and whether it's plants or animals and even the production of plants 
creates the death of animals and species. So, you know, the web of life is so much more nuanced and threaded together than we know living in urban, in, in urban areas. So, you know, that, and that really was the, the big discovery for us was we started farming as raw food vegans and we started a vegetable farm in Vacaville, California to grow vegetables for our, our raw vegan restaurants. And one, we stopped being raw because we were cold on the farm. We needed some heat. Um, <laughs> yeah. So we started eating some cooked I food. Can imagine. And then we needed some, you know, we needed some fat on our bones. And, you know, we, we started, we had a cow on the farm um, because we saw we needed manure to, you know, have, uh, to have vegetables grow yeah. and, and, you know, starting to interview farmers and, you know, understand farming and, you know, the, the grandfather of biodynamics, uh, Rudolf Steiner, and also the creator of Waldorf education, you know, he said that, you know, a farm, a natural farm is not a farm without a cow because, uh, nature, um, is not nature without animals. And so if we want to have farming mimic nature, it has to have the integration of animals. And in nature, animals are being, um, you know, part of their role in nature is, you know, being recycled, their energy being recycled through the predator-prey relationship. And this is actually really beautifully communicated in this video called How Wolves Change Rivers. You ever seen this? Yeah, I have. Uh, it, it, you know, communicates this brilliant uh, idea of called a trophic cascade, where if one keystone species in an ecosystem is playing its right role, that there's a proliferation of more life that flows and all the way through the ecosystem. And so basically humans introduced wolves back into Yellowstone National Park after many, maybe 50 or 100 years of them being uh, exterminated. And by them being introduced back into the park, the whole thing, the ecosystem just becomes alive. It starts to regenerate and thrive because there, there was a, a stagnation and there wasn't a movement of circular energy that wasn't happening in that park because the, the grass eating animals had gotten lazy and over, you know, multiplied and were just, you know, tearing all the forage up and, you know, tearing, you know, the, the plants up from the roots and just hanging out in the valleys. And so that had been just totally degraded, but then there was no fertilizer up in the upper sections because there was no animals up there. So that slowed down and started to degenerate. And then right when that reintroduction of those wolves, the whole thing, just so much more biodiversity comes back to life. So much more, you know, the, the trees start to, you know, sprout up and get a lot bigger. And the whole thing just kicks into this amazing uh, regenerative state. And so, you know, one of the, the big visions of my life is that human beings could see themselves as part of nature and see that we are a keystone species that actually can be responsible for the regeneration of our planet and that we can actually transform our assumption and way of being, which for this, you know, for give or take 10,000 years of agriculture in many cultures uh, have really had this degenerative relationship with nature that we take a piece of land, we plow it up and we plant annual, you know, grain crops. We do that for a couple of years. It gets degraded. 
We have a term called leave it fallow, which means leave nature to heal it because we, when we interact with it, it's getting worse, but we'll leave it fallow. Hopefully it heals, comes back to life, and then we can do that again. Oftentimes, you know, it doesn't come back to life and we just move on. And there's actually a record of 21 or 20 plus civilizations that have collapsed because their inability to produce uh, food, fiber, and fuel off of the ecosystem, off of the, the soil that surrounds that civilization. And in turn, the civilization uh, perishes. And so we're, you know, the, the, the kind of critical moment that we're at on planet Earth right now is that we've, we're at that level where we've, in the last 40 years, destroyed 30% of all the farmable land on the planet. And I think that I think there's 34 million acres every year that become permanently desertified that once were land that was designed for agriculture. And so, you know, we, we are right now, the current approach to agriculture is a very parasitic uh, version of agriculture. And there's a paradigm shift uh, to a new view, which is how human beings working land, managing land can actually have a restorative or regenerative effect on that land and uh, actually heal broken land. And actually animals are very important partners in, in, in actually doing that work. So, so, so right now, if, if we just say eliminated, eliminated all livestock from the food production process we would turn that 30% desertification into 100% over time. <laughs> because if, if you don't have animals in the equation of growing vegetation, then what happens is you have to artificially uh, populate the soil with growth factors like we call fertilizers and, and such, right? So, you, yeah, have to, so you have to artificially kind of prop up that soil that's now devoid of life supporting energies because the animals and the things that feed off the animals, Dewey, um, their poop. Um, I forget. No one knows what Dewey means except me and my top three friends. <laughs> it's like short for deuce, you know, um, without the animal deuces about the field and then the insects coming to eat the poop and then the birds coming to eat the insects and that whole, as you said earlier, like that whole circle of life, if you remove one component of that wheel, the wheel then collapses over time and we prop it up with chemicals essentially. That's right. Yeah. So I just, I want to, you know, I like to debunk things. And I think there's a lot of, especially young, younger people that haven't had as much time to research all this stuff. They just think like the whole world should just be kale and we'll all live happily ever after. And it's just, it doesn't work that way. So I like this. I love and not like, I love the, the message that you're bringing forth of this regenerative farming where you're really kind of able to mimic a natural ecosystem, much like the great plains of the United States when there were however many million of bison roaming free, 60 million had lush grasslands that are now deserts because they got rid of the bison. That's right. Yeah. I think there's a a critical piece is that grasslands and prairies all over the planet co-evolved with the partnership of perennial grasses, grasses that grow back every year on the same rootstock, and uh, grass-eating animals, herds of grass-eating animals, whether it's bison or gazelle or uh, elk or you know the many different grass-eating grazing animals. And so it was actually the partnership of 
uh, those grass-eating animals and those grasses that built that soil stock, that carbon stock of soil in that are under you know, the middle of the country that we essentially are now mining for that fertility that was built over many, many years of that partnership with those grasses and those grazing um, bison being moved by wolves. And it's, it's actually the, the partnership of those two components that allow for annual agriculture to exist and that we need, as again, as Rudolf Steiner said, to have natural farming, we have to have the integration of animals because that is the way that we can convert sunlight um, that, you know, into grasses, uh, into photosynthesizing plants. Animals can um, transfer that energy into uh, manure, nitrogen, uh, fertilizer that can then go into the system and, you know, continue to, to, to build soil versus uh, degrade it, which right now uh, most agriculture has a degenerative effect year after year. Uh, the soil gets uh, less uh, carbon, less ability for water holding capacity, uh, uh, less life in that soil, less biological life in that soil. And as you said, once we've destroyed the living organisms in soil, then we have to prop up that soil with synthetic fertilizers. Um, and then once there's no life in the soil, just like our immune system, you know, it's very, the soil system and the biologic, the biology of soil is very much like the biology of our guts. So when we, when we destroy the microbiome in our gut, we then need to pro, you know, that's gives a lot of uh, it, it gives a lot of functionality to our immune system. And so when we don't have that, we start to then need to be propped up with, you know, other, you know, synthetic medicines to basically stay healthy because our body doesn't have uh, the immune system to keep its, you know, self healthy by itself. And it's the same thing with soil. So the more we degrade the soil, then the, the pests come in, the predation and the, um, the parasites and the, the different bugs will come in, they call them super bugs and start to prey on those. And then we have to spray more chemical uh, pesticides to keep those bugs. So it's a, it's a, it's a degenerative and the antithesis of a virtuous cycle. It's, you know, it's a completely degenerative cycle. We need, you know, the soil dies more, we need more fertilizer, then we need more herbicide, more insecticide, and then the whole thing at a certain point collapses, then we have to move on. And that's what, you know, th that statistic of 34 million acres every year becomes desertified under mismanaged soils. And that's about the size of, I think, England every year becomes from land. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, in this, perspective. This, this, this is a crazy statistic. The United Nations states that we have 55 crops left on all of our conventionally farmed farmland across the world. So that we have 55 years until our soil will no longer be able to produce a crop. So going back to this idea in nature, the cyclical nature of the whole process of anything other than plants, because they have photosynthesis, therefore don't need to really destroy anything. Although I guess it could be said that they're siphoning nutrients from the soil through their root system, but they don't take anything from the outside above ground, right? But everything else does. So 
if I am an, a lover of animals and I think that everyone should just be eating celery and I buy some land and I go clear that land to make a celery farm, I'm going to be killing tens of thousands of creatures and, 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 and their homes from earthworms to snakes, to gophers, to birds, to bats, grasshoppers, et cetera. Right. So like nature's always fighting against us wanting to grow food. And so if I don't want to harm anything and just eat vegetables, that's very hard to do because you can't unnaturally turn a plot of land into farmland without displacing or killing everything that's already there. So it's just, it's not a question. It's an observation of, <laughs> of maybe a limited or hypocritical point of view in that, um, it's like if you truly wanted to live a life where no harm is done, you know, the Buddhist tenet, do no harm, I believe is what it is. Um, you would have to kill yourself because you really can't do anything or grow anything without things dying. And likewise, when we pass and leave our body with no intervention, if I just walk across that field right now and I die, those same animals that I've been eating are eventually going to eat my body, right? As it decomposes, buzzards are going to come and like rip off my elbow and worms and maggots and all of those things. And I'm just going to become part of the soil and the ecosystem. And then my body will become the bodies of plants that other animals will come eat. And then other humans will catch those animals and eat them. And it really is like this cyclical thing. Um, likewise, if you grow some crops of broccoli and drive them down a freeway five miles, you're killing hundreds of thousands of bugs in so doing, you know, it's like, in other words, I have this interesting observation that you can't even really move through space and time without at least bacteria dying that you step on or you're breathing in, you know? So it's like, the question is bearing all that in mind and taking the kind of politics out of it and taking the, um, you know, the emotion out of it, like logically thinking, just completely emotionless, logically thinking, if we want to be the best stewards of the land, if we want to be the, have the most conscious relationship we can with animals and not animals in a sense of a hierarchy where we think killing a pig or a cow is wrong, but we're fine killing all the gophers to grow some vegetables. You know, if all life is created equal, including the consciousness of plants, you know, um, the hidden life of plants, I think is the book that shows that Plants are in some way or shape uh, sentient beings. So in the new model of mimicking nature in this regenerative agriculture, uh, how, how is that to be done and how is that to be scaled? And within that system, are not creatures also going to be expendable to some degree to keep that system going? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great big, question and you know i just want to first say that i think being someone who lives in a city and choosing to be vegan and eat vegetables and organic vegetables and go for your farmers market i think it's a admirable and honorable path and because you know in in the realm of doing less harm how do i you know if i if i want to do less harm i think there's you know, I, I don't want to participate in a CAFO confined animal concentrated animal feedlot operation situation where animals are being fed, um, you know, more antibiotics than any other place antibiotics are going on the planet. But to you know that that livestock, you know, poor grain that's you know 
being grown with all kinds of crap. And, um, the condition of those animals lives is a, is a Holocaust. It's, 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 distri- it's, it's unbelievable. I think human beings in, in the way that we look to some of the things that we've done in history as appalled and ashamed of how we've behaved as human beings and that we allowed for something to be that way. Animal agriculture today will be something that we will look back and go, wow, we're ashamed of how like medieval times, you know? <laughs> yeah, dude, there's that one, um, uh, farm on the five freeway, you know, when yeah, you drive yeah, from yeah, LA yeah. to San Francisco and you look out there and it's like, even if you're just semi awake, you look at that and go, that's not right. Yeah. You know, there's just an intuitive hit. That's like, uh, animals aren't supposed to be living like that or being treated like that. They're just out living in the mud, just kind of moping around. And yeah, it's, 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 it's extremely, um, saddening to see that kind of mistreatment. Totally. So, you know, I, I, I respect, and for the most part, I am plant-based. I, I eat a mostly a plant-based diet, you know, eat, and again, fish is probably the thing that I eat the most of. And I think where that comes from is when I was 12, I became, I was a fly fisher, a fly fisherman and became really connected to being in nature, um, putting a fly, you know, catching a fish, and, and seeing that fish as, um, you know, nourishment for myself and, uh, you know, being grateful for that fish and consuming for that, consuming that fish. And, you know, I had that experience early on in my life, which gave me, again, as you said, kind of, I had permission and understanding that there was this cyclical relationship between, you know, plants, animals, in this case, fish, you know, for me. And again, I, I, I feel really good on a mostly plant-based diet. But that being said, I also am a advocate of, you know, what is, if we really dig into, because at one time I did think veganism was the truth, the way, the, the, the light, the answer. And I think it, it has a lot of, it has a lot going for it, but it is, it's missing a few, you know, very essential understandings, which is really, as we talked about, how how did those vegetables come to be and did they rely on the death of animals you know one page before we ate them and we just didn't read that page so we're you know we're like we don't want to read page 1 we'll just read page 2 which is when the vegetable is you know shows up at the grocery store at the farmers market and that's when we eat it and we're you know we're we're good cuz that's what we you know and you know this 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 conversation gets a little bit paralleled to the story of um, the religious vegetarianism in India with the Hindu culture and the fact that a lot of the, the higher castes and cultures in India who don't, or are vegetarian, they, but they love the milk. The milk is an essential nutrient for the culture and the cuisine. And, you know, to obviously to get milk, we have to have, you know, cows that are giving birth. And then oftentimes you have a male cow. And when you have a male cow, you know, that's not going to be producing milk for you. So what are you going to do with it once it's full grown? And in Indian culture, oftentimes they're either given or sold to, you know, the Muslim culture or, you know, someone who's not of the caste of Hindu that, you know, holds the cow as sacred. But ultimately that cow is going to get slaughtered and turned into food or something. Oh, that's interesting. Another piece, another piece to that, that I've always found interesting and hold, hold that thought. Yeah. I don't mean to interrupt, but I just want to interject this yeah. really quickly is, um, 
when I was a vegetarian, I was, I was never vegan, but as a vegetarian and I just felt like, well, I'm not, no animals are being killed uh, for my sake, but I, I loved me some cheese, you know what I'm saying? Totally. And yogurt and all that and um, butter, you know, but then I, I had the realization one day. So those animals aren't being, those cows that are making my delicious butter that I'm eating as a vegetarian, like aren't being killed that, well, they are actually eventually, but not in order to get that butter. But then I had the realization, dude, they're being held, they're being like constantly impregnated and like in a prison for pregnant cows where this goo is being extracted from them every day. It's it's not much better of a life to be a milk cow than it is to just be a cow that's raised slaughter and becomes prime rib. That's anyway, right. just interesting observation that yeah. I had one day pondering such things. Carry on. Totally. So yeah, so I think the, um, you know, going back to the question of, it's not as simple as we can just step out of the web of life and say, I'm not going to participate in death because we are participating in death no matter what, whether we're eating vegetables or animals. And the, you know, the, the, the kind of like, all right, well, what's the higher, what's the, what's the aspirational direction to go? And through the last seven years and the, the building of a nonprofit that I, I found, co-founded uh, called Kiss the Ground really has led me to understand the ecological functionality of Mother Earth and really understanding the deep interconnection and the tie between plants, animals, soil, humans, the, the, the health of the atmosphere, uh, you know, the overall health of the planet and how as human beings can we go back to that term, be a keystone species that is facilitating with, you know, that we have unbelievable awareness and consciousness of, you know, what, what we can create and understanding now through science as well as in through indigenous wisdom of understanding, you know, nature and the interconnection of nature, how can we operate and put certain acupuncture points within the way we're managing a piece of land such that that land can heal and regenerate based on us planting a certain biodiverse you know, combination of seeds or plants on that, us putting a certain biodiverse version of animals to integrate on that piece of land, uh, us putting certain trees to kind of hold uh, and bring holding the earth such that there's not a erosion happening. You know, there, there's, there's ways that right now we manage land, you know, completely destroy the earth. Rape but, and pillage yeah, style, but, yeah. But, but there's actually a way that we can manage uh, land that has a healing and restorative effect. And that, to me, you know, at the highest level, it's really, it came down to this insight of, wait, plants photosynthesize carbon, they pull carbon out of the atmosphere and they pump 30 to 40% of that carbon into the soil, feed microorganisms in the soil in exchange for water and minerals. And when those uh, carbon and hydrogen carbohydrates go into the, the soil to the feed microorganisms, that becomes stored carbon in the soil. And that essentially we can do a form of agriculture called regenerative agriculture that not only feeds the world, but also cools it. 
And yes, there is life and death in that system, but there's life and death in that system in a balanced way where there's actually a continual net benefit or there's a net um, increase of overall biological diversity in that system. And there's an ability for that soil to continue to produce forage and biodiverse plant life such that you can continue to have feed animals, continue to feed humans, continue to feed you know, all the different bees, birds, biological life that is part of that, that web of life. And that, you know, what, a, what an amazing purpose in life to be creating a quilt of living systems on the planet that understand science, but also understand the intuition of, you know, amazing cultures that have, you know, come way before us that essentially human, human life is about restoration and regeneration of our land and that we can actually feed each other, that we can live in connection with living things and that this can continue to go on for generations to come. Because right now, you know, the, the prognosis of how we're going to feed ourselves and how we're going to live on this planet in 25 to 50 years is bleak. You know, there's more energy going into how do we get to another planet than there is to regenerating and restoring our planet, that this beautiful piece of paradise that we have right now. And, you know, I, I believe that it is a, a fundamental, fundamental mind shift, which actually sees that we can actually be a beneficial organism on this planet and that we can actually restore and heal the damage that we've done thus far and that the purpose of life moving forward can actually be participating in that healing and that regeneration. And that's what, that's what lights me up. And what lights me up is like, we can heal, you know, yes, we all, you know, it's like to witness a human being healing and seeing a human being to, to, to witness a piece of land that's been degraded and to then see it coming back to life. You know, intuitively, I just can't think of a thing that would be a, a better collective project for all of humanity to get behind than restoring and bringing life, biodiversity, uh, vitality uh, back to this precious planet as like the number one game for human beings on planet earth. And so, um, you know, that's, 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 that's my game is to awaken that message that that's possible and start guiding people to um, experts and processes and procedures and practices and people that are doing large scale uh, regenerative projects around the planet uh, that you can see, wow, that went from 44,000 miles of desert to a complete restored, beautiful ecosystem. There's a place called the Laos Plateau in China. Uh, in 13 years, they took a complete desert, 44,000 square miles, and turned it into a completely productive ecosystem, producing food and you know the abundance for that civilization that lives there. Um, wow, it's actually it's 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 shown in the in the feature length film that's due out in 2020 called Kiss the Ground. Um, oh, cool! You're working on that now? Yeah, it's uh, oh tight. It's almost done. It's, oh, it, great! I didn't even know that because at the time of this recording, guys, we're in uh, two, we're in November 2019. Your interview will likely come out in 
February or maybe even March of 2020. So we'll be closer to yeah, the, no, that, um, that, to the, the film. film. Yeah, the film, uh, it's narrated by Woody Harrelson. Oh, dope. And it's, it's got an unbelievable, you know. Well, wow, you have a lot of restraint in plugging your projects. <laughs> We've been talking about all this and you're like, towards the end, you know, like, yeah, by the way, I'm making this rad film about this. That's so cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because see, the, the thing... Of, like again, taking emotion out of it, which whenever I'm trying to, not like I have any power to solve a problem, but just when I look at a broad spectrum, complex, nuanced problem, like caring for the land and managing to feed ourselves in, in a healthy way also, it's like, I think, all right, what makes sense? And what makes sense to me is usually going back in time before the advancements of, say, in this case, agriculture and industrialization. How would it have done before as we were living kind of on the land in a more harmonious way? But looking into um, into the future in that way, I find it really exciting personally just because, I mean, A, for just the reasons of uh, having a heart and wanting people and animals and plants to be happier. But aside from that, I love fixing shit up. Like my, I don't watch much TV, but if I did, it would be the shows where they come into a crappy old house and remodel it. Or even those ones, I'm not even a car person, but where they take like a shitty old classic car and totally restore it. Totally. Yeah. I've just, I'm really into restoration. And I think I've done that many times in my own life internally and in some ways externally. And so the idea of seeing that happen on a grand scale is really exciting to just watch the forces of nature when we're working in harmony with those forces, you know, us kind of, as you said, being the, um, the keystone species that's putting some inputs logically here in that acupuncture sort of system, as you called it. And then to see nature and inertia sort of take over and start to, you know, go through the labors of uh, healing itself with a little bit of input from us is super exciting. Yeah, it's That's just cool. I have I didn't see it before and after, but I I think I was telling you yesterday. Um, spent some time at Belcampo Farms up in uh, near Lake Shasta in California because that's where I get most of my meat, and I just felt like I would like to have a closer relationship with that process. So I went up there and visited their farm, went to the slaughterhouse and the whole thing. I was like, okay, I can live with this. But they had I don't know it's eighteen thousand acres or something. I might have the number wrong, but a substantial piece of land. And when they bought the land, it was unfarmable. And they did exactly what you're talking about. They just started rotating the livestock and the birds follow the ruminants and the, uh, or the insects follow the ruminants and the birds follow that. And then they move them over here and then more grass grows because of that thing. It's just, it's fantastic. And now their whole farm is just lush green grass and plants and trees. I mean, it, it's not a jungle climate, but it's as green as a jungle. I mean, it's just like everywhere you look, something's growing. It's just this incredible property that was not like that prior to their arrival. That's right. Yeah. It's so dope to That's... see that happen. And then you have something for everyone too, because you can grow vegetables for the people that don't want to eat meat. You Absolutely. Know? And then you can grow meat for people like me that I just, I literally just don't feel right if I don't eat meat. And my body's just like, fuck you. You're not a vegetarian. I don't care like how spiritually connected I become. It's just not an option, you know? And yeah. I, I think like sometimes people say, what do you eat? And I don't really pay that much attention, but I would think, well, I'm plant-based. But those plants go through an animal first. (laughs) If I eat a lot of vegetables, it wrecks my gut. Like I'm just not a good digester of, um, especially raw vegetables. Oh my God. I mean, I can eat leafy greens, but if I eat like a bunch of raw veggies, my gut's wrecked. Too much cellulose, like too much fiber. It's just, it's a burden. But I can take down a giant ribeye and I feel like a champ and like, just give me that. And that's all I need for a whole day, you know? 
So um, I'm excited to kind of get into this approach because it removes the kind of dogma and religion of like who's supposed to eat what and who the good people are and the bad people are and all that bullshit. And just like, cool, what's best for everyone, including all those animals, plants, and the future of the planet. Yeah. So a couple of things I just want to point out is that um, one of our big goals um, by 2025 is to train 25,000 leaders to be spokespeople on behalf of regeneration that can articulate the process of how the regeneration of land uh, and soil works such that you can be an educator, an advocate, uh, and an activist in your community, wherever you are. And so we, we do that online and we've trained about 2000 people in 25 countries in the last 12 months. Oh, that's epic, um, dude. Wow. And you, it's called the soil advocate training. Uh, so, we so wanna, it's an online program, Yeah, online program. Wow, so that's amazing. Inviting, inviting your listeners to participate if you're inspired by today's conversation. And then the other way that we're, uh, making a difference is we're training farmers over a three year transition program where we, we, we put a scholarship together. Uh, we pay for their education. We pay for their a consultancy for the three year transition period and pay for soil testing for farmers to be able to see their progress in heading towards uh, this regenerative pursuit. And so, yeah, and our goal by 2025 is that we've trained 5,000 uh, farmers by 2025. Wow. That's, so, that's, that's, uh, that's impactful. Yeah. So, and, and that's a lot of acreage, assuming that said farmers, you know, farmers, 5,000, 10,000 pieces of acres. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And, you know, one of the the goals is to take the film and do a uh, tour where we take the film out and share it in college communities, uh, where we basically turn college students into advocates, into our advocate program, and then go to farming communities and show our film and then offer scholarships and, uh, people can sign up for uh, an online training that could uh, have farmers go through a three-year transition program and they wouldn't even need to do it with, you know, in in the place where the trainers are training that are maybe two states over, they can actually do it online. So we're in the process of developing uh, an online portal uh, for farmers to uh, learn uh, very, very... Um, from the best, not from us, because we're city slickers in, in, in Venice, California, <laughs> but actually from the best regenerative farmers um, in this country who are who have been doing this for you know twenty, thirty, forty years, um, and giving that giving their education a, a beautiful online platform such that it can scale and have access to a lot more people quickly, and having the film be the calling card and inviting people to participate. Oh my God, that's so epic! Congratulations! Yeah, that's such a noble. Uh, uh, project and I'm thinking about those farmers in the Midwest that are more concerned with feeding their family and paying their mortgage than they are saving the planet. But totally. In, our, this, our, in this model, I mean, the real selling point there is like, if your soil's healthy, then you can get off subsidies. You can get off the GMO teat, a teat um, of you know having to buy those seeds and that whole like monopoly, just archaic evil system that so many of our great farmers are are locked into that's like monetarily speaking sounds like a really great way out yeah the 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 farmer gabe brown who's kind of a um iconic regenerative farmer um in this country in north dakota he grows you know he's farming about five thousand acres and he averages about a hundred dollars of profit per acre um, on his land and the average American farmer 
averages, I think, between one to two dollars per acre profit per year. Oh my God, that is a really horrible business model. What the hell? And, you know, Gabe Brown, and again, Gabe Brown is not about you know, saving the world or reversing global warming. You know, the, the, the thing that's so incredible about, you know, regenerating our soil is the, the amount of benefits. It's like such a win, 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 you know, all the, all the, um, impactful benefits that that provides, but you know, he likes to keep it really simple. And he's like, we have a good motto on our farm. We like to sign the back of the check not the front of the check <laughs> keeps a lot more in your pocket. Um, and, I like that. Um, I like and that. essentially, yeah, he, he's been able to get himself completely off all subsidies, get him off all herbicides, all insecticides, all fertilizers. And you know, that's some of the biggest expenses in farming is fertilizers and insecticides and pesticides is, you know, all those inputs. And he's been able to, you know, that that's all a reduction of expense to, you know, the farming economic model. And so really he's, he's leading with, this is an economic win boost for farmers. Totally. It, I mean, it, it is. Yeah. And that's such a great selling point. As I said, when someone's just trying to make a buck and keep their, keep their game hustle going, you know what I mean? Um, of course, from my standpoint, not making money off growing food, my big win is a, that there's land around for, you know, grandkids and things like that, but also just having access to food that's not grown with NPK fertilizers, with sewage sludge. I mean, I don't think people realize how shitty organically grown produce still is. I mean, it's way better than conventional, but it's gnarly, man. You got fluoridated tap water, you know, in that celery and in those cucumbers and beets and watermelon, anything you're eating. I mean, the food supply is completely toxic, even in the organic side. Whereas in this model, if you can get rid of those inputs altogether, within a couple of generations of that soil, I'm assuming you have like clean food. Yeah, uh, well, assuming I mean, with, you have with, you know heirloom with, seeds and things that have within some within nutrient th- density. within three to five years, you can really transform a piece of land from a desertified, brittle, hardened, uh, compacted soil to soil that's has life that has, uh, the sponge is back at water can infiltrate. There's, uh, the bio, there's biology in the soil. Then when there's biology in the soil, then you're able to get the nutrients and the minerals that are in the soil. Because just, I don't know, I don't think we said this, but when you put something in your mouth, if you don't have the proper biology in your gut, you can't get access to those uh, nutrients. In the same way, there can be all the nutrients in the soil, but if there's not the biology in the soil, then you're not going to get access to those nutrients. Right, because the the little uh, microorganisms in the soil essentially eat and digest nutrients, minerals, and whatnot in the soil, make yep. those able to be assimilated up into the plant, yep. bioavailable to the plant, because yep. the plant can't eat rocks, That's right. but the bugs can, yep. basically. And then with the energy from the sun combined with the nutrients coming up through that, that living soil into the plant, animals eat that plant further concentrating the nutrients from the soil, from the plant, from the sun. Um, and then kind of up into us in the end, or sometimes you can skip the third step and just eat a cucumber without, without having a Turkey eat it first and then become Thanksgiving dinner. That's not your thing, but that's a beautiful system. And I think anything that we can mimic like that in nature is amazing. Um, I have one more question for yeah. you because there's a lot of 
Oh man, around environmentalism, uh, isms in general kind of make me squeamish because there's oftentimes um, ulterior motives behind those isms and people funding isms that are less than integrous, like some of the carbon tax issues and things like that, which we don't have time to go into that are kind of under the guise of uh, perhaps doing the right thing for ourselves and for the planet. But meanwhile, there's big bad bankers that are putting these laws into place just to make more money off the populace and have a hidden tax and siphon our wealth um, over time and bring us into further servitude. There's that side of it. But then there is the other side of it, which is that um, we do care about the planet. We do care about our longevity and uh, you know the 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 in uh, the environment that we're leaving for those that are going to come after us. But there's huge debates on both sides of the isms as to uh, what wrecks the planet more. Um, there's one documentary on um, Netflix right now that's you know says we get rid of all the animals and just grow plants and um, and I think some of these you know polarized movements that come out with the documentaries and the experts um, often disagree. And the big war right now that I don't exactly know what the answer is is like what uses up more water, what trashes the land more. Is it just that when we're doing the factory farmed animals that those wreak havoc on the land? Um, and is the same factory farm that's growing corn and soy and wheat doing less harm? You know what I'm getting at here? It's like, so we know what the solution is. The end goal is what you just laid out. But there's many people that say, oh, if you raise one cow, it uses up thousands of gallons of water and their farts are, you know, causing global warming and all this kind of stuff. And all that sounds a little far to me at times and a bit radical. Um, yeah. Uh, so what, what do you, you know, like, yeah, I think, I mean, do I you think, know any of the stats on like, okay, one acre of lettuce equals one cow, essentially? Uh, like, the way I look at it is like, a, you raise a cow, right? It's going to require a certain amount of water, vegetation, certain amount of land. But then the caloric net that you're getting out of that cow can feed more humans than the cal cal caloric net result of growing your kale. Or whatever. So I'm just curious about the math of how all that plays out in the current system and the way people are kind of yeah. butting heads about those things. Uh, I I don't have the exact um, there's there's so much debatable data. Paul Hawkson calls it box data. Uh, like you know, it's it's information that we learn from our computer that just tells us. But there's so many nuances that aren't fully understand or sussed out in that kind of box data. So what I do know is that land needs animals on it to stay healthy. Otherwise, it over time degenerates. So before there was irrigation, there was rain and there was grasses and there was grass-eating animals that were grazing on that being moved around by, by predators. And there's a lot of land that we can't use to grow vegetables on that actually is grassland that can be grazed and we can have the restorative effect of um, grazing ruminants. And so clearly what I, what I absolutely know is bad is growing monoculture corn and soy with synthetic nitrogen and then protecting that with synthetic pesticides and that total degradation of soil and mining of soil 
soil life and then feeding that very chemical intense food to a cow that eats uh, that and then needs a lot of water to produce, clean, kill that whole system. There's, yes, it's, it's, a, it's a very um, energy resource intense equation. And I know that there's been, you know, in the, the kind of vegan movies have come after, like we wouldn't have enough land, you know, we'd have to have cow, you know. And w- what I know is that animals help land come back to life. And it's not about just no cows or cows. It's we need cows, we need grass-eating animals to bring, as I said earlier, in the last 40 years, we've desertified one-third of our agricultural land. And that land can't just come back to life by planting kale on it or putting, you know, no, it, it needs uh, a, a process. Uh, it needs a, you know, it needs a stimulus of some water, some animal impact, some human design and, you know, impact. And ultimately these areas, like you talked about at Bel Campo or, you know, our, our, one of our mentors, Alan Williams, uh, down in Alabama or Georgia has 5,000 acres who he's able to, in three years, was able to triple the forage on his land meaning there was three times the amount of living vegetation, which meant he could have three times the amount of cows on that same piece of land. Wow, that's crazy. So because when, you have, when you have X amount of acres and every year you have more density of forage, then you can have more density of animals on that forage. And again, the way that you manage it is not you, you're not having one cow per acre. No, you have them, you have them, you have them together and they move as a pod, as a, as a herd in different regions to, you know, fresh new grass every day or every other couple days. And in turn, that has that whole restorative effect. Does it require water in the beginning? Absolutely. But, you know, there's places, there's a lot of places where we, you know, there's water falling from the sky and there's other places where we do need to, you know, kick the system into gear with, you know, irrigation. Um, but that's going to be, um, necessary, you know, for, for anything that we're cultivating. Yeah, I know. I was thinking about, uh, as you were speaking about the consumption of water, cause that's a big concern with people is, um, you know, central California almond farming, you know, like yeah. I'm going to drink almond milk because that's better for the environment. I'm like, really, you know where almonds come from? Like they're one of the most depleting trees, um, to, you know, for water consumption. It's just, it's so interesting, but you could have that almond field, you could fill it with cows and you'd be golden with the same amount of water because of the retention of water in the soil, right? As you start to get that sponge, I like how you described that, that layer, that spongy layer that holds in the irrigation water, the rainwater, wherever it's coming from, rather than it just kind of like... Yeah, 1% increase of soil organic matter in soil can hold 20,000 gallons more per acre. So when you increase your soil organic matter, um, that, that those carbons that are being pumped into the ground, by 1%, you can hold 20,000 gallons more per acre. So the, again, there's this virtuous cycle as you pump. And again, I don't know that we made that big kind of overarching epiphany idea that essentially our food system, a regenerative food system can not only 
you know, take the carbon that's in the atmosphere causing global warming, climate change, 410 parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere, sequester, draw that carbon down through the living plants, trees, sequester it into the soil. And as it's sequestered in the soil, now that soil becomes spongy. And for every 1% of that carbon that's been stored, now we can hold 20,000 gallons more per acre of water. And when you have, um, you know, regenerative agriculture happening on land, you're able to, uh, you know, on average farm infiltration rates could be like a quarter of an inch per hour. So because of soil being so compacted, whereas on a really um, well-managed regenerative farm, you can have a quarter inch of infiltration within three seconds. Wow, meaning the water seeping into the surface of the earth. That's right. So we don't have if we don't have soil that has the ability to have that sponge effect and let the water seep, then what's going to happen is we have runoff and erosion. Because that's right. The Fl- ground is too dense and hard for the water to penetrate. It takes too long, so it ends up floating off into the periphery and then just being wasted. Essentially, that's right. Hmm, that's so interesting. Cool stuff, dude. Yeah. So um, <laughs> it's funny. All this talking about all this farming is like three things are going on i'm like i need to get out and touch living you know the smell of soil mm-hmm. just the that biological uh, potpourri of life in in really rich soil i love like touching it and smelling the smell of soil and i'm craving that i'm also craving some spring water and um and another salad and perhaps another bison um, short rib. <laughs> it's like making me hungry talking about the process of all this. And I just find it so fascinating. Um, the last thing I wanted to cover, yeah. and you know, we could just kind of touch on this because it's probably its own whole thing, but I was recently at a, an amazing resort slash farm uh, in Mexico called Cuixmala. And I went down there and did kind of a field report about this organization and, and how they do it. And they have a biodynamic farm and they have 30,000 acres of a natural preserve there, UNESCO protected. And it's just absolutely fantastic ecosystem. And I got to spend a considerable amount of time one day with their head biodynamic farmer. And he took me on the whole tour and, you know, showed me how they collect the rabbit turds and put them in the soup and, you know, like not soup you eat, but, uh, you know, fertilize water for the plants. And he showed me his whole lunar schedule. I mean, it was mind boggling. And it's like so spooky and woo woo. You're going like, is this guy crazy? Then you taste the food because all their food at that location is all biodynamic. um, And it's all grown there and their other sister location up in the mountains, another hotel called Hacienda um, de San Antonio. And they do the animals and then down in the lower land, they do the fruits and vegetables and stuff. And they do the coffee up in the mountains. But I mean, not only do they just have great cuisine and their chef is fantastic, but the flavor of all of the food is just insane. And the life force of that food, it's just like you could blindfold someone who knows nothing about any of it and give them like some great whole food, whole foods market, organic vegetables, fruits, whatever, and then give them this biodynamic food from that farm. And it's just like, it just vibrates. It tastes so much better. It's so much more filling, so much more nourishing. You eat less. It's just magical. So do you think there's a play? Tell us from you know your perspective what biodynamic farming is versus traditional organic farming, and if you see that as having a place and being scalable within the regenerative model. Yeah, I th- and I, and I've mentioned in this talk already a couple of times Rudolf Steiner, who is the uh, godfather of or grandfather of 
uh, biodynamics. And I would say that right now, in this moment, uh, when we're looking for, okay, wow, I'm inspired by regenerative agriculture. How do I eat food from regenerative systems? Biodynamic is the clearest labeling certification that would say this food is produced uh, in a way that has a regenerative effect on the ecosystem that it comes from. Oh, cool. Um, so that's, it, it, it that's really, good to know. It really is the labeling for the current, you know, regenerative agriculture is kind of um, moving into the space of uh, food trends and conversations around food and how we can environmentally, you know, make a difference on the planet as well as feeding people in a, in a, in a healthy way. But Biodynamics has really been the uh, regenerative agriculture over the last, I don't know how many, 40, 50, you know, 100, I'm not sure how many years it's been around. But uh, the unique thing about biodynamics is it really has an aspect of esoteric spirituality to it, uh, as well as astrology. And it really is about bringing the, the creative forces of the universe and kind of bringing those down to your piece of land and, you know, calling for that wisdom and that uh, intelligence of life, call it whatever you will. And, you know, and having that uh, creative force be uh, present on your land. Uh, and, you know, so there's a lot of very interesting different kind of ceremonial or, um, ritual aspects of it, of, you know, you spinning, making a compost tea and spinning the water that holds different, you know, biological preparations, you know, some cow manure and some different things that have been aged in certain times and, and you put it in and, or some ash and you put it in this and spin it a hundred times to, to bring the, you know, circular cyclone energy from the, so there's a lot of very interesting. And I think, uh, you know, there's varying degrees of, you know, the esoteric nature that people are practicing within biodynamics and some people are super into that component. And I think at the, the more simple um, level, it really just sees that a farm is a living organism that, and everybody is on the farm is a part of that living organism. And how do we create a, uh, a restoration, a healing and a continuum of more life on that piece of land based on our activity and action. Whereas the distinction between organic is organic has really just become a list of what you can't do to a piece of land. Like you can't use these three chemicals, but you can use these five chemicals. You can't use, you know, these insecticides. You can you know, so it really, because it's in some ways, and again, organics is, you know, it, it's beautiful and I appreciate the standard of it and that it, it has held a certain line, but it also has, the line has been slid based on, you know, big corporate interest of getting into a big food game called, you know, people interested in organic food. And so there's been definite, there's been a, a loosening of the standard of what can be show up on an organic farm. And, you know, I think the biggest distinction is it really is just a list of what you can't do, whereas biodynamic or regenerative is a list of what you can do to have this restorative and healing component to your soil, which ultimately leads to restorative healing food that comes from that soil. And so... Um, when we first started farming on Belove Farm in Vacaville, which is where my parents live, we, 
you know, we're, we were running it as a biodynamic farm and, you know, we've since adapted some, you know, there's still some components of biodynamics there and there's some other components of, you know, other different schools of thought inside of a regenerative agricultural system. But at this moment, there's not a regenerative uh, certification. There's one in development called the Regenerative Organic uh, Certification, which Patagonia and Dr. Bronner's Soap Company has been behind pioneering. Oh, word. And, That's uh, cool. So that, that they're in kind of a, a beta test phase and should be to market with products probably in the next one to two years um, that will be carrying the Regenerative Organic Certification, which just uphold animal welfare, uh, soil health practices, and uh, fair trade and, you know, uh, fair compensation to farm workers. And so that's the regenerative organic certification. And there's actually a few other uh, certifications in development phases around communicating and standardizing this articulation and this vision of regenerative agriculture so consumers can participate and support it um, with their dollars. Um, Because, you know, at the the most uh, exciting high level, when I got wait, you're telling me that we can manage land and do agriculture in a way that heals and regenerates the planet and reverses global warming and everybody can participate by feeding themselves and their families healthy food. (laughs) That's a pretty compelling, like I think most people that's like a bipartisan, that's like everyone's down for that. Uh, And obviously there's lots of, you know, complications and challenges and things that will get in the way of that. But uh, at 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 a very high level thesis, that was like, that that thesis gave me hope and gave me something to live for and something to work towards and something to, um, you know, uh, something worthy to throw my life at. And so that's that's what I'm I've I've become a uh, I, I playfully say I've become a minister for soil. I minister uh, inspiration and insight and education around the importance of soil health and regeneration because it would be a really exciting thing that if we could get a generation to get that we can be the regeneration generation, uh, that we could actually play an active role in healing and restoring uh, our planet through how we manage our land and how we create our food. Amen, brother. Yeah. If these mics weren't so expensive, I would drop them on the ground right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thanks for spending time with me today, man. Yeah. I'm really glad a, we got to connect. I'm, I'm glad like no one's come in the room and told us we're supposed to be anywhere. Like we got a, we got a really tight bow around this shit which I love to do. You know, I don't like to leave any stone unturned in a conversation, especially one that's this potentially complex and big. So thank you for, for uh, participating with me today. And I look forward to hearing your talk and hanging out more over the weekend. And I look forward to introducing you today yeah, and, and getting right. to uh, have this experience as the energetic information to how to communicate who you are for me and who you are for people. Awesome, dude. Yeah. Well, I got one last question for you. It's a yeah. three-parter. So okay. you've taught me in the audience a lot today. Who have been three teachers or teachings that you've learned from that you might recommend our students go also learn from? Mm, wow, great question. Well, my fav- one of my favorite books, my favorite early book is Siddhartha. So, so Damn, that's some deep reading to do early. <laughs> uh, so yeah, Siddhartha Buddha is definitely one of my main, my main mans. Uh, so was this supposed to be living teachers? No, it doesn't matter. Teachers, okay. teachings, philosophies, Teaching. you know, something someone could go look up and, and learn from. Yeah. Yeah. In any category. In of any life. category. Number two. 
yeah, what's coming to mind, and I was surprised that this is coming to mind, is uh, The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. Felt beautiful. Um, had, you know, just, it's been an amazing, profound education. And, you know, always do your best. Uh, don't take things personally. Don't make assumptions. And what's the fourth? I don't know. <laughs> well, go 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 find get the book and find out that fourth. Well, we'll just call it the three agreements. Uh, yeah, I have it. I have it on my shelf somewhere, and I don't think I've ever read it in its entirety. I think it's one like I'm supposed to read this. Everyone reads it, and I thumb through it, but I've not really dedicated myself to it. Yeah, I would really say my mom and my dad. And my mom has a a community in Maui called uh, Lo uh, or called uh, yeah Lokahi. And uh, she has a cool little living community where they're uh, practicing living in community, connected to the land, and also uh, share, you know, medicines from the earth. And uh, she does something called Cafe Attitude, which is a Sunday night supper club. And they sing songs, write songs in devotion to the earth and to caring for the earth. And um, she's been an amazing teacher in uh, just flexibility and love and exuberance and being mindful of our, our words and that our words are spells and that we're casting spells all day long and to be aware of what spells we're casting. It's been a beautiful teaching for my mom. And then my dad, you know, he's the founder of Cafe Gratitude with my stepmom, Tiercy's, and just a, uh, the, you know, the, 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 the tattoo that me and him have, uh, say, be love on our forearms facing ourselves. And uh, just that love is an indwelling presence. It's not something found in another person or place or thing. And that we can always bring uh, love to every situation, every moment. And every relationship is not based on, uh, am I getting what I want? Like that's a that's that's gonna be that's gonna be a uh, you know uh, uh, a lonely path is uh, thinking that I'm gonna just try to get what I get love from another versus bringing and being the presence of love and having a communion be the sharing of love that is indwelling and sharing that love with another uh, and that's kind of the game that I play with my wife and our marriage and um, and that. We, we both hold the love internally and we get to joyfully share it with each other. And I feel like I've learned that practice from my father. And he actually leads a workshop called uh, Kindred Spirits, which is a relationship workshop, which is awesome. They do it at Esalen and oh, on word. their farm and our, our farm in Hawaii. No way. I have to check that out. Yeah. I love those types of seminars. Yeah. I love Esalen too. Dope, dude. All right. Yeah. What about, uh, where can we find you? Anything you want to promote on website, social media, your uh, film, any of yeah, that Yeah. So yeah, film coming out in 2020 called Kiss the Ground. It's really, uh, the way I see it is there was a timeline for the inconvenient truth and there's going to be a, a, a moment on the, the human timeline for Kiss the Ground when we realized that there was actually something we could do to restore and regenerate our planet. And it became like this awakening of land, soil, drawdown opportunity. Um, and so, uh, that's out, uh, beginning of next year and excited about that. And then, uh, you can find me, you know, I'm, uh, love being Ryland. It's, I love being 
myself and I'm also a love being. And so you can find me on Instagram there and at kissetheground.com or at kissetheground is our Instagram. It's really beautiful if you want to get more inspired about regeneration, regenerative agriculture and participating in any of our courses uh, there. And then at Cafe Gratitude and at Gracias Madre. Uh, check out our restaurants, organic plant-based restaurants in Southern California, not only nourishing people with healthy food, but really wanting to bring the conversation of gratitude uh, to people's lives so that they connect over giving thanks versus um, maybe some complaint or uh, something more mundane. I might add, you uh, might unknowingly be the producer of the best guacamole in the entire city of Los Angeles. And there's a lot of damn guacamole in LA. But the Gracias Madre chips of guacamole, mwah, mm. like the best ever. I mean, there's a lot of great things there, but that that's something like hands down, I'm always going to order. Um, speaking of your social media, a shout out for your Kiss the, Gro- Kiss the Ground it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there's another great account I'd like to turn people on to. I interviewed someone named Diana Rogers, who has, I, I think her blog is also called this, uh, but her Instagram definitely is it's Sustainable Dish. And she's on a, a very similar mission of just spreading information about regenerative farming. And she's like very, very proactive and also um, coming from the health professional perspective too, kind of like half farmer, half health enthusiast. So there's a lot of people kind of pushing this, um, you know, this information forward, which I think is super exciting. Yeah, no, it's it's remarkable that seven years ago when we started Kiss the Ground, there wasn't even really an agreed upon term regenerative agriculture. (laughs) And now it, as I said earlier, I think, you know, top 20 food trends of 2020, regenerative agriculture is number one. Boom. Uh, So it feels good to feel you know, the momentum and the wave, but it really is the revolution and the generational revolution and regeneration that we, uh, there's, there's that we're, that's being asked of us. So I'm just grateful to be a uh, participant and advocate and minister for soil and regeneration. Right on, dude. I'll yeah. see you back home in LA. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the Lifestylist Podcast. Man, I had a great time sitting down with Ryland. If you're ever in LA or any other city where his restaurants are operational, I highly recommend that you dip in and have a bite. You might even run into me. And I'm going to take a minute to remind you to please leave a rating and a review for this podcast, whether you're a new or old listener taking two or three minutes to scroll down and leave that rating and review is just a very powerful way to support the work that I'm doing here on the show and to ensure that as many people as possible see it in the future. I'm so grateful that you guys brought me up to number 17 on the charts. My goal for 2020, the year that we happen to sit in right now, is to get into the top 10 and only you can make that possible by leaving a rating and review and sharing these episodes with as many friends as possible. Uh, More than anything, just thank you for listening. And speaking of thank yous, it's now time that I give some props to our sponsors. You know, as a podcaster, you're not really required to do that. You know, these these brands pay you a fee to uh, read their ads on the show, even though I don't really read them. I just kind of say them. 
but I think they call them ad reads or something. I don't know. I sort of make up the rules as I go along when it comes to the podcast industry. But uh, I'm not required to give them a shout out at the end, but I know sometimes people fast forward through the ads. I mean, to be honest, sometimes I do it if it's a really annoying sounding ad and I'm really immersed in a conversation, I might skip it. If you do that, listen, I get it. But the fact is, without supporting our sponsors, I wouldn't be able to do this show. It's actually quite expensive to uh, run this thing at the level that I am now. The, the duration of the episodes, the frequency of the episodes, all of the video content, the live streaming, the editing, the advanced uh, show notes that we're doing now, complete with transcripts. You know that every word of the show is now written in a transcript, which you can get, of course, by getting on the newsletter at lukestory.com forward slash newsletter. Uh, point is, it takes a village to make this thing happen. And these people at the village, they don't work for free, dog. And uh, so, you know, I was able to afford to do this myself for about the first six months. I was, I was self-funded. I hired a you know remote team of people that did all the different parts of the production. And uh, it was expensive when I started, when I was when I was pretty lo-fi. And now we've got kind of a real professional operation going here. And um that's what you know funds the show. So if you can support our sponsors, it's a great way to do that. Listen, if you don't want to drop any coin, go back to the rating and review. That's enough. That's awesome. But if you like products that support your health and wellness, uh, here's who they are. Super fat, man. Get these keto cookies straight up. I swear to God, you order some of these keto cookies from superfat.com. That's superfat.com. They have some other great products as well. But right now I'm obsessed with their cookies. I can't keep track of like giving you your money back or something, but I can almost with absolute certainty just see your face right now. And you're going like, oh my God, Luke was not shitting me. These cookies are freaking insane. So go to superfat.com, get some of their keto cookies. Use the code Luke there. Might as well save 15% off. Then we've got Beekeepers Naturals. That's beekeepersnaturals.com. The code there is Lifestylist, which saves you 15%. These guys make unequivocally the best bee products in the world, in my opinion. Just they have a suite of products that are just insane. I've interviewed their founder. I grilled her about all of their practices. I mean, they're beyond organic. They're tested for pesticide residues, Roundup. They're kind to the environment. They're kind to the bees. They're totally sustainable. I mean, like, I don't know any companies really doing it this well. That's why I'm happy to support beekeepersnaturals.com. And then uh, we've also got Cured Nutrition. That's curednutrition.com. They've got some amazing CBD and herbal infused products. You can use the code lifestylist there to save 15% off. And then heads up, you can find all of the products that I mention in every show that I use in my personal life, including all of our sponsors at my online store. The online store is lukestory.com forward slash store. And in that store, I don't sell anything. It's kind of weird. It's not really even a store. It's just like a, it's a very well curated and organized collection of links to all the things that I think are awesome, along with exclusive discounts. That's lukestory.com forward slash store. Now, lastly, I've got a bunch of events coming up. Hopefully they don't change. I'm banking on these things happening because... It's my livelihood, <laughs> so, or at least part of it. Uh, first one being Quick Small in Mexico, most amazing resort ever uh, that I went to last year to record. They've got a retreat called The Healing Power of Energy, where I will be documenting and live streaming the whole week. That's June 17th through 24th, man. And if that one doesn't happen, my heart's going to break, honestly, because I need to get out of this goddamn city. 
call Los Angeles and get myself south of the border. You know what I mean? Yes, sir. Uh, then we've got Paleo FX in Austin, Texas, July 14th through 16th. Upgrade Labs in Beverly Hills, July 24th and 26th. And we've got Meet Delic, the Psychedelic Symposium in Los Angeles, August 8th and 9th. I'm really excited about that one. Uh, Dave Asprey is going to be speaking there as well. Uh, Duncan Trussell, Chris Ryan, a bunch of fantastic people. Then I'll be back to the London Health Optimization Summit, September 12th and 13th. So it's a lot of big events. They've all been moved because of this wacky lockdown situation. Um, So God willing, I'm going to be there and I'd love for you to join me. You can get tickets as well as uh, date and time updates at lukestory.com forward slash events. God, I feel like I just give so many goddamn links. You guys are never going to remember these. But you know what's awesome? You don't have to. If you just scroll down in your podcast player, uh, whatever you're listening to my voice now, all of these links are going to be clickable on there. So don't trip if I like drop a bunch of links in these episodes. And you're like, wait, what was the thing? That's why we do very comprehensive show notes. So thank you so much to my team at Crate Media. What? I know these guys hear it because they edit my voice and look for screw ups. And I'm sorry, Gaz, who happens to be the gentleman that edits. I'm sorry I, I screw up so much on the intros and outros, bro. I, I really do my best to do it one one in one take, but man, it's hard. Uh, so thank you, Crate Media, uh, for the great job they're doing on my show notes. You know, we've got these complete transcripts. Now we've got timestamps. So if you want to like jump to a certain part in the interview because there's uh, something in the show notes that piques your interest, or if you want to you know, go back after you've listened and look at the show notes, you can do that. So I'm super stoked. And um, I love improving the quality of the show. And uh, my my friends over at Crate Media help make that possible. Okay, I think that's it, folks. I think that's all we've got. Uh, I'll be back into your ears on uh, Sunday for a bonus rebroadcast from my uh, appearance on Almost 30. And then again, next Tuesday with Dr. Alexander Wunsch, One of my heroes, man, a brilliant dude who's going to teach you more about light than you ever thought possible or necessary. It's going to be awesome. Thanks for listening. Keep doing it.